If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. That's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth, UFOs, aliens, and painting, fluoride in the water, they spray skies daily. When I talk about these things, they think I'm crazy. There's no escaping anymore, the evil that we're facing. Illuminati might control the sacrificing babies. The end of days, but anyways, my family thinks I'm crazy. What, they don't want to listen to you? No, they don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. <laughs> Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Gods of the ancient world have been reborn symbolically in the spandex-clad superheroes and heroines of the modern age. By way of print, film, radio, and television, superheroes and science fiction have captivated and enthralled humans around the world. Today, we will trace these connections in an attempt to understand what's going on behind the minds of the creators of these contemporary comic book mythos. Graphic warning, it's far darker than mere mystery cults and abracadabra spells. And it makes me, Mystic Mark, fear we may be heading for a full-blown body snatchers invasion. And the fantasy and so-called fiction may be exactly what's preparing us for this invasion. And I'm not alone in this position. In fact, today's guest Chris Knowles is about to spell out exactly why this scenario may be imminent. Stay tuned and find out everything here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And be sure to go to our support pages, Patreon, Rockfin, or Substack to support the show and hear the entire episode. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy this conversation with the great Secret Sun Institute's Chris Knowles. If you walk around a lot of those neighborhoods, starting from like Madison and like 34th, 33rd, and then going all the way up to Grand Central Station, I, you're going to think you're in like a, a, a pagan metropolis. Because you go into all the all these lobbies in these apartment buildings, and they look like pagan temples. This was like what was called the Art Deco and, and neoclassical movements of the 19th century, where all the images of the gods and stuff became very popular. And that's where they started building all these statues with Nike or whomever, right? And I think these kids would like to walk around these neighborhoods and see all this stuff. And all of a sudden, they didn't want their superheroes 
to be wearing like you know big cloaks and overcoats and scarves and fedoras and whatever they wanted them to look like like gods it's like the shift it goes from where the superheroes are just basically occultists for lack of a better term because most of them most of the superheroes like i said studied in the in the far east you know or the andes or in the himalayas or wherever you know they went and learned from these shaman or these mystics and so on their powers to fight crime so they went from being like basically mystics and occultists to being gods Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and returning to the show for the fifth, fourth time now, Chris Knowles of the Secret Sun Institute. If you're not already a student, go over to Patreon and get involved. Chris has been pumping out content there, live streams covering a bunch of really awesome topics. And Chris... It's really awesome to have you here on the show. I actually had the uh, pleasure of meeting you in person, and uh, I got to say thank you for uh, the lovely dinner at the diner there. That was a that was a great <laughs> opportunity in the world of podcasting. It's a rare one to 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 do this sort of in person meetup. So yeah, that was a, a lot of fun. I appreciate you being so hospitable while I was in Jersey. Well, I wanted to give you the full Jersey experience. You know, I mean, it's. Uh... Unless you go to a, a diner in like a majority Italian town, you know, you're just not doing Jersey. Mm. It's just, you know, it's it's just not right. You know? <laughs> well, there was you a do it right. If you're going to do Jersey, you got to do it right. You know, it's uh, it's one of those kind of things. Yeah, there was there was a couple of really awesome experiences from that trip. We went to New Hope with fellow podcaster and author Recluse. A lot of what we're going to talk about today. I guess was sort of brewing in my mind that day because just the nature of what we did, we walked around, looked at some you know, different shops. And I think one of them was a comic book store and you started talking about comic books and, you know, your career as illustrator and working with various comic book publishers. You worked with Marvel comics, right? And not the, with Marvel studios, not with the comics Mar with Marvel studios. And, you know, I was born in 94, so I didn't quite experience the heyday of comics. I was more around for, like, the death of the comics and, you know... Well, the... 94 is when the direct market first crashed, so... Mm, right, but I remember... That was actually a very uh, notorious year in the business. Okay, huh, well... What month? What, when's your birthday again? October in 94, yeah, so... Yeah, but it uh, cr crashed, like, in February and March, so... Hmm. So I started, you know, I was sort of being taken on a journey through the sort of insider's perspective on how heroes came to be in the comic books through your book, Our Gods Wear Spandex. And I was surprised to find out some of the roots going as far back as they do. One mm. very interesting connection you make is to... Bulwer Lighten, who I know you talked about recently on one of your live streams. He's responsible for writing about the Vrilya and uh, mm -hmm. kind of seeding that superhuman idea into the consciousness. Blavatsky kind of pushed that forward with her secret chiefs. But uh, Bulwer Lighten wrote a really interesting book that I, 
I found it at a used bookstore not too long ago called Zanoni, which oh, you yeah. s- say in the in the book is kind of like a primer for Rosicrucianism. It, almost mm-hmm. like you can get initiated by reading it. And I feel like comic books have that same ability, really. Like when a child reads a comic book, he or she is initiated into a new way of seeing the world and themselves in the world. Would you agree with that? Oh, sure. I just, I'm not sure that that's always healthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, absolutely. And you cite the, the comment made by, I think, some German sociologists who said that, you know, the Nietzschean Ubermensch idea was not very good for, you know, Europe in the 1930s and 40s. It led to, you know, this Nazi idea of supremacy. But it seems like well, a- that, that guy who you're talking about is a guy named Frederick Wortham, and he wrote a mm. book called Seduction of the Innocent. Mm. And for years, I was, you know, because he's sort of like a bad guy. See, the thing is, you know, when you have a bunch of adults that still read comic books and stuff, most of them have like daddy issues, you know. So he became the big bad daddy. You know, he became the big bad father figure, the, you know, the devouring father. And uh, what he was really saying is that these comic book companies, just just to make a buck, were putting out material that was not age appropriate, and it was having a bad kind of knockoff effect. And if you go back and look at some of those comics, I mean, a lot of that stuff is really rough. It's like stuff that if it was in a movie, it would be like NC seventeen. And they're selling it to kids, you know. I mean, some of that stuff got really gruesome. But he also, you know, talked about, like, how there was a a, a very powerful fascist impulse behind the the superheroes, you know. It was all, you know, might makes right kind of deal. But also, he had a couple of interesting people working with him. One was a, a woman who used to work for D.C. called Josette Frank. And she quit D.C. because they kept asking her to sign. She was a psychologist, child psychologist, and they kept asking her to sign off of these perverted, disgusting Wonder Woman comics. And if you go back and look at that, it's just like pedo nightmare hell. And it's that stuff is vile. You know what I'm saying? And it's just so creepy. And she's just like, I think, what did she say? She said an out out and out striptease would be less unwholesome than this, uh, (laughs) this comic book, you know? And then there's another interesting guy, this guy named Gershom Legman, who is a very interesting kind of like a bohemian uh, social critic, you know, but he was, you know, he was very skeptical about a lot of the kind of things that were going on in the car books. And, you know, he was like saying that, you know, Wonder Woman and it was, you know, just basically Wonder Woman was sort of projecting this sort of like lesbian pedophile fetish and Batman was doing the same, you know, with boys, you know, cause it's like, you'd have all these comic books were like Batman and, and Bruce, uh, you know, Bruce Wayne and, and Dick Grayson are in bed together and stuff. I mean, it's just so weird. And, and just, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And the woman, so I told you that Josette Frank sort of, she quit and she's just like, this is disgusting. I can't, I can't sign off on this stuff. And they replaced it with this woman who was like MK Ultra before MK Ultra was MK Ultra. This woman, her name was Loretta Bender, and she was probably one of the most evil people to ever have a medical license in this country. She undertook what she called annihilation experiments. And what that was is that she was in charge of these, host, these children's hospitals 
a lot of kids who are like, you know, mentally retarded or mentally ill. And she would pump them full of insulin. So they would basically die and then they'd be revived. And just all it's just a horrible nightmare. They'd go into comas. And then as soon as the LSD came came around, she's pumping, you know, eight-year-old kids, eight-year-old orphans, most of them were black, of course, full of uh, LSD, all this kind of crap. I, it was just a horrific nightmare. And, you know, the whole point was to to wipe out these kids' personalities, you know, and I, that's why she called them annihilation experiments. And the whole time she's doing this at Bellevue, by the way, she's working for DC Comics, you know. They put her name on the masthead, and she's part of this little group that were basically sort of signing off on all this crap that they were putting out and putting a nice little spin on it. And she was just literally one of the most disgusting, evil people of the past century. You know what I mean? And that's something else this guy, you know, Gershon Legman was pointing out. So, you know, like I said, there's this whole kind of infantile, especially with the boomers, you know, because the boomers, so many of the boomers had problems with their fathers because their fathers were in the war and a lot of them were traumatized by it, you know. And so there was this whole sort of antagonism because you had this incredible prosperity in the 1950s and you had all these soldiers coming, uh, coming back from the war, a lot of whom had grown up during the Depression. And then they're dealing with, you know, the war in the Pacific, you know, just the Bataan Death March or D-Day or, you know, I mean, you name it, just mass death. And they weren't really impressed by their, their you know, their idiot sons who just wanted to lounge around to watch television, watch Howdy Doody all day. So that's why, you know, uh, Riddick Wortham, who, again, I, I, I've for a very long time have seen as a hero, was demonized. And he was demonized because he was pointing out that these things were doing damage you know, that these these comic books were putting up material that was not age appropriate and was doing psychological damage, especially like, you know, poor kids or kids who might be mentally ill, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it's very much the same of what we see now with all these other kind of entertainments. And really what it is, it's like all the fast buck artists just want to keep, you know, pumping the money machine and they will you know, hire all these shills to sit there and, you know, make it seem like they're radical or socially responsible or whatever, you know, and worth them because he was, he was a German Jew who had escaped Hitler. And he understood that the, the psychological mechanics of, of state control. And he saw this in the comic books, you know, and his work really led to, you know, these massive reforms uh, you know, there was what was called the Comics Code Authority. And what had happened is that this really laid the groundwork for the superhero revival that, you know, is just starting to peter out now. I mean, it really laid the groundwork because it all kicked up in the late 50s. And what it really was is that these guys couldn't just write stories about, like, people gouging women's eyes out or cutting their heads off or whatever. They had to write, you know, imaginative stories for children. And they had like a very uh, strict set of rules to follow. And uh, that led to the, you know, the superhero explosion. So as much as people sort of kick against, against this guy, he, he basically set the stage for these, you know, these publishers to become billion dollar operation. 
You know what I'm saying? And, you know, for instance, I mean, <clears throat> one of the, the publishing houses was called uh, EC. And it was this guy named Bill Gaines. And he later started Mad Magazine. And that sort of became his flagship. But at the time, he was a massive speedhead, right? I mean, he was like overweight and they were giving him Dexies, you know, Dexedrine to, to lose weight. So basically he and his editors would just sit around and just speed their brains out and write all these like incredibly fucked up stories about like, you know, just pure mute. I mean, stuff like, again, stuff that like would get at best an NC-17 rating if it was put in a movie today. You'd never make it on television, certainly not on any children's television. You can go back and, and read these some of these comics, and they're just absolutely brutal. And, uh, you know, he testified before Congress, and he was speeding his head. He was like, you know, this big fat guy, and he's sweating, and he's like stammering because he's so, sp- you know, speeding off his brains. And, you know, the senators will just look at this guy and go, yeah, I don't think so. Mm. And they just put the hammer down on these people, like, really hard. Yeah. So, again, I mean, this was another time when the superheroes were pretty much dead. Like, the superheroes kind of died after the war. But they were reborn because these publishers, you know, they couldn't do crime comics and they couldn't do horror and all this other kind of stuff that wasn't really age-appropriate that they were making money off of. So, the the superheroes sort of became their saviors. And what, what that led to is that they're not make they're not only making money on the comic books, but they're making money on, t- you know, television and movies and lunchboxes and T-shirts and toys and bed sheets, you know, anything that you could just slap an image on with a Superman or a Batman or something. That was where the real money was made. And I remember I'd gone to SVA, I, uh, I was a part-time student at SVA, and I had a class with this guy named Carmen Infantino, who had been the editor-in-chief of Marvel uh, DC Comics, like around the time of, like when the Batman movie, uh, the Batman TV show in the 60s was was popular, and he was basically running DC at, at that time. And, you know, he told me flat out, he's like, you know, comic books don't make money. It's like the, the stuff that makes money is the toys and the games and the, the shirts and the... the like I said, anything that you can slap an image of a superhero on, it's just, it's all gravy, all gravy. And that's what I did, you know, for 25 years of my life for Marvel, you know, starting when they were toy biz, because, you know, I started doing all the uh, action figures and stuff. And then I started doing artwork for all the, all the other stuff, you know, all the, I don't know, t- like t-shirts and yeah, merch. Merch, <laughs> all the merch, you know. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and that was that was where the money was. I mean, I I guess it was the same thing. I mean, I remember back. I think it was like 2012. I'd gone out to lunch. You know, I'd gone up to Marvel, and the uh, guy I was working for at the time was a VP, and he took me out to lunch. It was around Christmas time, and he told me flat out. He says Marvel loses millions on publishing. Publishing is a loss leader for them. You know what I mean? Like they, they just do not make any money on it. And he said, and he said, they just put this stuff out there, you know, basically to just keep the, the, uh, the visibility of the, the, the characters high and, you know, to protect the copyrights and which I've always thought was a little overkill, but they were losing money hand of a fist. I mean, this is like when they're doing like hardcover original graphic novels and they, they would, they would lose Hundreds of thousands of dollars on all these things. So it's really the, uh, you know, the merchandising 
So again, you know, even though we have this this sort of knee-jerk, childish, boomer, you know, love me daddy kind of attitude that sort of demonized people like Wortham, you know, Wortham really set the stage for Marvel and DC to become what they are today, you know? Yeah, well, and one of the ironic things that I learned through our God's Wear Spandex is that the same villains that were being fought by these crime fighters were behind the scenes, you know, profiting off of the the publishing, right? For a long time at the beginning, like before the comics code in the thirties, they were mm. pump, pumping out all these comics and it was a way for them to launder money. Right. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's funny because this it's twofold because the paper, the pulp paper for all the magazines and stuff came from Canada and Canada didn't have prohibition, right? So all these publishers would get these giant rolls of paper, you know, shipped down in trucks or trains or whatever, and they'd be like, you know, these those big tubes that would be and would be just filled with booze, you know, bottles of booze, you know, right. Canadian club or whatever. And that was like part of their part of their income. But also, you know, the mob basically controlled all the, the newsstands because it was a cash business. And they used the newsstands uh, in the same way that like the, the cartels use bodegas and stuff today. You know, they use them to launder money, you know, cash business, untraceable, you know, uh, poor urban clientele. It's just it's just a great way to to, uh, to launder huge amounts of money. And that was a big part of the uh, the income level. But the the other thing that the uh, it's just kind of a funny story too. Like so, another reason why the the mob was interested in or the mobs, you know, there's all sorts of different mobs running around at the time. You know, one of the reasons they were interested in, in comic books because they would and they would have all the uh, or not all, but a lot of the artists at night would moonlight drawing what's called Tijuana Bibles. And Tijuana Bibles were just basically these like little pornographic versions of, you know, famous cartoon and comic book characters. Wow. You know, uh kind of similar to what you see, you know, with like uh you know the porn parodies of Yeah of i don't know a zener or something you know so they would have you know some these and it was all and it was kids too i mean it was like most of the, these comics were being drawn by high school kids right and that's why when you go back on them they look so terrible but they would have uh you know during the day they draw like i don't know batman superman you know wonder woman whatever and then at night they would draw you know these por- pornographic stories a lot of times like you, know, you draw superman comics during the day and then you draw superman pornos at night for the mob right so uh, there was a lot of involvement. You know, there was a lot of shady dealings. And, uh, you know, it's always been kind of a dirty business. And, and an interesting thing is that so D.C. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, right, had gotten really popular because of Batman, right? The Batman TV series was just a huge hit. And it was like a merchandising bonanza. And there was this guy, I don't know, I'm going to blank on his name, but there was some some sort of like one of these New York operators and he had owned uh, Kinney and Kinney owned all the parking lots or they ran all the parking lots in New York. So that was another kind of cash business. Steve Ross was the guy's name. So this is another kind of cash business. So he had bought, he had Kinney and then he used Kinney to buy DC and then he used, you know, he leveraged the money that 
he made from DC to buy Warner Brothers. <laughs> so that was how Warner communication, you know, Warner communicate. So Warner Brothers, which at the time was kind of like a failing movie studio, became Warner Communications and then became Time Warner and then became AOL Time Warner. And now they're uh, Warner Discovery. You know, I guess AT&T bought them. They sort of dumped them pretty quickly because, you know, these companies are just dogs as far as making money anymore, you know, especially with streaming. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's just so funny because it's all this kind of secondary and ancillary activity with all these like shady businessmen and and uh mobsters and i mean there's just a lot of interesting stories you know some of these artists were just major fuck-ups you know Mm. (laughs) and uh you know for instance so uh jerry siegel and joe schuster created uh superman right when they were kids right and i don't think they sold it i think they were in their early 20s when they sold it and you know, for the time they were making good, they were making good money. And of course, you know, somebody, I don't know, it's the wife or the father-in-law's is like, Oh, you know, you got to get your rights back. And, you know, I mean, DC's making billions of dollars and all, you know, so then they, you know, so they had this good thing going with DC and then they blew it because they, you know, they sued them, you know, they were trying to get more money and get the rights back and all this kind of thing. And uh, Joe Schuster, the artist, you know, he ends up just drawing pornos just to put food on the table. But his eyesight started failing him, so he ends up, he becomes like a delivery boy, basically. And the guy's in his, like, 40s or 50s, and he's a delivery boy. And there's a, a very famous story that he had gone up to D.C. He, he, just by sheer coincidence, he, he had to make a delivery to D.C., and uh, Carmine, you know, Carmen Infantino, who I mentioned before, who is the, the uh, editor in chief, you know, calls, has him, you know, calls for him. He wants him in the office. And Joe Schuster's thinking, oh, this is my big break. You know, I'm going to get back in the company and, you know, I can work on Superman and Superboy again. And he, and he goes into Carmine's office and Carmine's like, you know, you fucking scumbag. What are you, what are you doing around here? You're just, you're just, you know, bringing everyone down. You're bumming everyone out. Get the hell out of here. You know, it's just like such, oh my God, just like so ruthless and uh, horrific. But what had happened is that when they did the, the Superman movie and they started working on the Superman movie in the like mid seventies and the publicity was so bad, you know, cause this, an artist who passed away recently called Neil Adams was like one of these real creator rights guy. And he was like, uh, you know, he wanted to champion Siegel and Schuster and, and they sort of like rewrote their whole story, you know, that they were just, you know, these dumb kids who got taken advantage of and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Steve Ross, who I'd mentioned before, uh, basically arranged for them to get a stipend, you know, to get like, I think it was like $20,000 a year for the rest of their lives, you know, because they were trying to get the Superman movie off the ground and they did not need the bad publicity of like, you know, the guy who co-created Superman is like living hand to mouth, you know, making deliveries in New York by hand, you know, like a street courier. And, uh, but Siegel, oh, I got to do something like, I got to do something on this for the, uh, I don't know, for the SSI or something, because that dude was, he had some serious issues. Like, he did all these comic books that are just like the most pedophilic things you've ever seen in your life. 
uh, like one was called Nature Boy and one was called Mr. Muscles. And it's just like, you know, these muscle men, you know, grooming pale young boys. I, it was, it's like, you got to read these comics because you're like, you're like, what the hell was he thinking? Like, who, who the hell published this stuff? This is just flat out gay porn. I mean, it's not even gay porn. It's pedo porn. You know, it's just this flat out pedo porn, just like wank. Oh my God. But, uh, that, that just is like, it's so common. Like so many of these, uh, artists and stuff, like their ids just explode on the page. And, and after a while, when they run out of stories, they start delving into their, their little sexual fixations, you know? So, uh, I mean, it's, I was involved in fandom from a very early age. I, I, I started getting involved. I had this uh, teacher at my elementary school who was, you know, these days people would think I was like totally inappropriate, right? But at, at that point in time, and it was just like, I don't know. It, it wasn't, you know. I mean, I'd go over his house and shit and read his comics, but it was like his wife would be there and stuff. And I knew it was just all above board, but he kind of got me into the whole thing with fandom and stuff. But when I started going to conventions, it's just like, it's a good thing I was from Braintree because it's just like the sexual predation was just crazy. It's just off the hook, you know? I mean, like all these like screwed up nerds with, uh, you know, pedophilic obsessions, you know, fixations. And I mean, I just saw so much of it, you know, just, you know, started going to conventions when I was pretty young and everything. And, uh, the whole scene was just really uh, grim and depressing and kind of sordid, you know what I mean? And uh, a lot of, like, a lot of, like, really great artists who, you know, the people who created all these great things that are making billion dollars for these companies now, yeah, they just, they didn't end up well. A lot of them, you know, develop, like, in drug and alcohol problems because the, the work itself is so incredibly tedious and just brutal to do. I mean, it really is brutal. And, uh, you know, they end up, they all end, all of them just end up getting screwed too, you know? I mean, so we've had all these characters that are making all these, these billions of dollars for these Marvel movies, you know, Civil War and, uh, you know, uh, Endgame and uh, No Way Home. The, guy, the guys who created all these characters and wrote all these storylines, right? That I mean, the same exact storylines that they just sort of soup up a bit for the movies. These guys will get like $3,000. They'll get a check for like $3,000, you know, because they, they created the story that became Infinity Gauntlet or something, you know? Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely brutal. You know, I mean... One of the guys, uh, his name was Jim Starlin. Really interesting guy. I mean, he kind of peaked early. A lot of these guys peak early, you know, because the the, the work is so punishing. Like, it just kind of sucks away their talent. But anyway, so he was a guy, he was a Vietnam veteran, and he was like in the shit, you know. He wasn't like, you know, in the rear of the gear, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> he was like, so he had sort of be, developed this whole, like, uh, death fixation, you know, because he sent over to Vietnam and sees like the worst of humanity has to offer up close. And he's hanging around with a bunch of these other guys, this, this whole new generation of comic book artists who come in. Right. And they would like trip balls, take like huge doses of LSD and then just like wander around New York city at night, which like this is the seventies. <laughs> That's not what you do. 
You know, I mean, if you have like half a brain, you don't like sit there and dose yourself to shit and then just like walk around like, you know, this horrific, violent city, you know, uh, that was just a dystopian hellhole. I mean, it's becoming that way again. That's kind of like the mystical practice of psychogeography. I forget the name of the group uh, that practiced this in France, but they basically did exactly that. They would, you know, minus the drugs, just sort of wander around through a city and to see, you know, what sort of artistic inspiration would come to them. Oh, definitely. But these guys were tripping. <laughs> that makes <laughs> yeah. all the difference. Yeah, well, for sure. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, that makes all the difference. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and like I said, you have a guy like Jim Starlin who was, you know, he's the guy who basically created Thanos, right? I mean, Thanos is kind of a ripoff of another character. We won't get into that because this just gets a little too inside baseball. But so I grew up, I grew up, you know, so I'm old, right? I'm old enough to be your dad, right? And uh, and I grew up in the 70s. You know, I was a kid in the 70s. I mean, I was born 66, right? Uh, turned 13 in 79. I was actually turned 14 in, uh, you know, the... Uh, my birthday is July 1st, so it's always the middle of each year. Anyhow, you know, I grew up reading all that stuff. And all these, like, crazy hippies who are into, uh, you know, Robin into and Wilson and Cosmic Trigger or the Illuminatus Trilogy or, uh, you know, conspiracy. I mean, there was so much conspiracy stuff in, in comics in the 70s. Like, you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. I mean, half the comics I read, you know, and I'm a kid, you know. I mean, I was a pretty precocious kid, but... You know, I'm reading uh, all this kind of stuff. And I, I you know, there's this one guy, uh, another one of these kind of old hippie dudes, guy named Doug Mensch. And Doug Mensch is, uh, you know, he's pretty famous in some circles because he had done the big book of conspiracies back in the mid 90s. And apparently, like, he became like a god to the Wu Tang clan. Like, uh, they were trying, like, they were always, you know, like, he told me, like, they, they get into, you know, trying to get him to come to concerts and, like, sending limos and shit for him. <laughs> like, all this crazy stuff, because, like, this book, the big book of conspiracies was, like, that was, I mean, almost as much as, like, the X-Files and stuff, or Behold a Pale Horse, that was, like, the real jump start of conspiracy culture in the, in the mid nineties. So I met that dude and, but I read, I read all, I read all his stuff, all, all his stuff in the, in the seventies and eighties. I was just like uh, me and that guy were like on a, on a wavelength, you know? And I had actually uh, hung out with, I, I got him to go to uh, Jeff Kripal's, one of Jeff Kripal's things out at Esalen. And he's like, Jeff, Jeff is asking me like, oh, you know, who should we bring? You know, I need, I need another slot, but I'd like a, you know, a good comic book guy. And I was like, oh man, you got to get Doug Mitch. You know, uh, that was like the first name that came into my mind because his stuff was like, I mean, you name it. This, you know, he's a guy who was reading all those, all that stuff, all, you know, the seventies, uh, occult and underground, all that crazy stuff. I mean, he was, he was really heavily into it and all his stories were great because he brought all that stuff into his comics. But a lot of those guys did a lot of those guys, you know, they brought in a lot of, uh, really heavy conspiracy stuff that, you know, like I said, that's what I kind of cut my teeth on. It's one of the reasons I'm the way I am today. You know what I'm saying? What, what, were, some now, of, what were some examples? Like, which, you know, what would oh, people okay. really so, go back and find? 
Okay, so uh, so Doug Mensch did one of his big books was Master of Kung Fu. Okay, and uh, basically he took the characters from uh, the Fu Manchu books, the Sax Romer characters, and he kind of made it like this, uh, almost like James Bond kind of thing. But it was all all of it was like, you know, secret government conspiracies. You know, it was all very you know very deep like that. But there was another guy named Steve Engelhart. You know who did uh, who did a lot of you know sort of post Watergate stuff. You know, like sort of riffing on uh, you know a lot of the kind of conspiracy stuff that you saw in the seventies in the wake of Watergate and Vietnam, and you know, of course, the Kennedy uh, assassination. But Mensch also did this book that I just he did the uh, the comic book adaptation of Planet of the Apes. So he would do like, you know, ad- adapt the stories from the movies, but then he would write his own stories and they were just like, forget it. <laughs> I mean, he did this whole thing with like, it was called like the psychodrome. And it was just basically this uh, MK Ultra. And this is before anybody knew about any of that shit, by the way. Uh, this sort of like MK Ultra doctor is like, becomes like this Lovecraftian monster because of, radiation but anytime he can get his hands on somebody he puts them on these tables and you know runs the tapes and everything you know like the the the, the patterning so obviously he found out i should have asked him at the time but it was like just totally like you and cameron right it's like you and cameron is like some uh or or sydney gottlieb whatever is like as some uh you know planet of the apes mutant uh who just uh you know i it was just just totally like mind control and and brainwashing, you know, like very much like search for the maturing uh, candidate, you know, John Marks and so on. But you know, a lot of kind of like Manson-ish, Manson-ish kind of touches in some of his stories. But also, I mean, Jack Kirby. So I don't know if you know Jack Kirby, but uh, so Kirby's just basically the guy who was sort of the engine room behind the Marvel universe and. He and Stan Lee just basically came up with everything, you know, uh, FF, uh, Hulk, you know, he had worked on Captain America in the 40s, but he had like worked on early versions of Spider-Man and, and Doctor Strange, you know, sort of the prototypes of those characters. I mean, he basically was, the, you know, the co-creator of all that stuff. But when I was a kid, I remember he he did his run on Captain America and it was called the Mad Bomb Saga. And the whole thing was about like these like uh royal they call themselves the royalists and it was like these uh these old you know descendants of like the british aristocrats during the revolutionary war who kind of wanted to take back america you know and they were going to use what were called mad bombs which were just basically these uh these mind control devices that just drove everyone crazy but they're also doing like all this kind of crazy eugenic stuff and like uh, genetically engineering, like this slave race and so on. I It was just, I mean, like I'm a kid, right? I mean, I started, those stories started, how old was I? 75, I was like nine years old, right? And I'm reading like this, just, yeah, you know, Curry just doing like, he, he's like reading every, he's reading books like None Dare, Dare Call a Conspiracy and, and uh, you know, whatever, you know, all those, all those books, right? all those conspiracy books and he's like putting it all into his comics. Right. And, uh, it was, it was a trip, man. I mean, you can go back and read some of that stuff, like called the mad bomb saga. I mean, it, it is like, 
it's just flippy. I, and, you know, because I really believe very strongly. And I can, I can show, I can point it out. Like I can point out exactly when it happened. But I, I really think that he got into acid or something like that. And I think what happened is that he was a combat veteran from World War II. And what had happened is that he was down in Fort Benning, Georgia, right? Uh, doing his basic training. And they found out he could draw. So they told him, they said, all right, you're going to do reconnaissance. So what you're going to do is that we're shipping your ass over to Europe and, and we're going to send you behind the enemy lines and you're going to draw everything you see, like make maps and stuff, and then bring it back to us. That's <laughs> like the most dangerous shit you can possibly do, right? I mean, just like go behind enemy lines and... He'd gotten captured at one point. Uh, he got captured by the SS. He and like his crew, and they all they all sort of escaped, like miraculously. So he he just he obviously had like major PTSD, as far as I'm concerned. And I think what had happened is that he probably was going to like the VA and the, and just said, "Oh, Doc, you know, I'm uh, I'm having some major problems. You know, I was." Uh, Frontline combat, I got captured by the SS, and it was it, things got really hairy and so on. Then I got frostbite, and they wanted to amputate my legs and so on. So like, oh, uh, I'll tell you what, Jack, just take just take, take this little piece of paper and just slip it under your tongue and just hold it there until it dissolves, right? Right? I mean, this is my theory. But a lot of people are starting to, like, think this because his stuff just went from being, like, uh, clunky you know, kind of chock-a-block-looking stuff to be in, like, everything was, like, pulsating and vibrating and everything was, like, nebula and and just energy fields and everything just got... I mean, that's when all those crazy stories that a lot of these movies uh, kind of get made of sort of came about because you can just see it, though. I mean, like, literally, like, it goes, like, where he's just drawing, like... uh you know, he was he was roaring like a, a like three or four books a month. I mean, it's just crazy work schedule. So his stuff was a little bit rushed and so on. And then like literally overnight, like from one issue to the next, it goes from just like, you know, just normal kind of 60s crude kind of comic book superhero stuff to like, you know what I mean? And it's just so clear. I, mean, I just like I look at it and go, that that dude got dosed, man. It's just so obvious, right? It's just like you're like, like what, what, what are they, what are they slip you, brother? Well, and they slip you. And this might not be directly connected to Kirby, but I was thinking the same thing as I've been watching the animated series of the X Men and the animated series of Spider Man. A lot of that, you know, a lot of the episodes are directly taken from, you know, the comics, and yeah, so many things that were, I mean just blaring out to me oh predictive programming is the phrase we use now but you know back then i feel like it was more like dispensing information to people who who might be able to to see the truth too you know like hiding truth in fiction well it's you know it's a, it's a funny thing and i'll tell you why because you're sitting around just like with a pencil and paper in an empty room and you got to come up with this, these ideas and stuff, right? Your brain just is going to go in the same directions that uh, that remote viewers do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you just go, just because it starts where you can just see like an FF, like 
around uh, late 65, he's still doing like a real kind of, it's just like everything just becomes, that's when he starts coming up with like Galactus and the, the and Silver Surfer. You may probably remember a lot of those oh, yeah. characters from when you were a kid, but you know, everything just becomes like, and you know, Black Panther is another one that he creates. Well, and there's you know. this very, you know, deep kind of social criticism throughout a lot of Marvel's comics, it seems. And, you know, this idea of the superhero has kind of evolved along with globalism in a way. And I feel like that archetype of the superhero is steered in a direction that aids this kind of social justice warrior cultural dynamic where people think like, oh, I'm the one who's going to change the world for the better, you know, because they're given these stories to model after. Oh, wow. I'm seeing the uh, the Fantastic Four cover you sent me with this Gorgon. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, so that, so like, I mean, but uh, I don't know. It's a whole thing, you know, but what are you talking about? I mean, that's only been like kind of recent. So they've been trying to like shoehorn a lot of the social justice stuff. And they sort of started doing that a few years ago. And basically what they're doing is they're killing they're killing the goose that laid the golden egg because people do not, I, you know, I don't care what, like who you are, you know, what your race or whatever is, you don't go to, you don't go to a, a Marvel comics superhero movie to get a lecture on social justice. You just don't, you go to, you go to those movies to, to, to escape and just have like a fantasy adventure thrill ride you know, for a couple of hours. Well, it, then... when it's done well, I think it, it could be a good device. I mean, the X-Men in the 90s, they were kind of criticizing what was going on with the apartheid in South Africa and some of the storylines, the animated series. These mutants were, you know, taken by Sinister or Apocalypse, I forget which one, and, and used to enslave other mutants on this fictional African island that was kind of a stand-in for... South Africa. So, I mean, you know, in some, in some senses it, it could be a, a beneficial thing, but I see what you mean, how they've kind of eroded that. And, uh, especially over the past few years. Oh, well, it's, uh, it's over. Mm. It's over. And like I said, they killed the goose that laid the golden egg. Mm. You know, cause here's the thing. It's like, you know, you hear a lot of talk about diversity and they're always, uh, race swapping all these characters and stuff. And that, you know, when I see that stuff, that's what what that really is, is it's about assimilation. It's it's about, assim, you know, using these stories and these characters to provide like some sort of way to bring people in to like, you know, basically the, the military industrial complex mindset of America. Right. So it's just like, uh, you know. I don't know, like 30 or 40 years ago, I mean, all those characters would be white, right? Or mostly, but then they would sort of, over the years, mix things up. But it's really, what it's really about, and what I really sort of saw with a lot of these stories, is that it became very much servicing, you know, the the, the military project, the, the, the overarching project. And... You know, and then the woke stuff comes in. And, you know, the woke is like, I mean, that's straight out of CIA, right? Straight out of Langley. And what it really is, in a lot of ways, is divide and rule. But 
you know, sort of evolved into like, oh, we'll just dump on the white guys, right? And that will be like sort of, well, we're going to be able to create an in-group out of all these diverse groups of people, you know, because we're going to make the white guys the, the scapegoats. And I, they, they just shot themselves in the foot. And there are other ways to do that. You know, there are other ways to sort of create diverse stories that would kind of bring people along, you know, but it, you know, what it really is, I got to tell you something. It's like, it's mostly like white women, like liberal white women sort of bought into this whole woke ideology because they don't feel like they have any value or worth in, in this mercenary culture that we're in now where everybody's going to brand themselves and everybody's going to make themselves into a select, you know, a sort of some sort of celebrity or something people got to just sell themselves constantly. And they kind of feel like, well, we don't have anything to sell. So they, that's when woke became, you know, the ticket, you know, it was sort of like this unifying principle, but it's so insane and it's so destructive and it's so off-putting, right? I mean, because these women, you know, come from lives of privilege and live in bubbles, they don't understand that, like, just working, say, like, working-class Hispanics hate that stuff. They hate it. They hate it, like, really badly, you know? And they, and they find, you know, like, they find it, like, really demeaning and insulting. And, you know, like, the whole, like, you know, these women with their white savior complexes and so on. And that really started to infect the movies and uh, it's it's just fucking over i mean you know they they had to bring the stuff in because it's this you know this social contagion but i mean i can tell you firsthand i mean i was i was cranking for marvel and then they started doing shit like uh, like the eternals and that was just a huge disaster i mean it, i think they lost like 150 million dollars in that I mean, and even things like Shang-Chi, I mean, I, I was, you know, that was Doug Mensch, Master of Kung Fu, right? Uh, I, I love that book. But the Shang-Chi movie that they put out doesn't have anything to do with the comic at all. And uh, none of this stuff, you know, it's all just sort of second string characters that nobody really cares about. Right. And, you know, like when they took Captain Marvel and they made Captain Marvel a woman and then cast like the biggest Karen in the universe as their star, this woman who just is just repellent to everyone. I think she, even to herself, they destroyed the character. They destroyed the viability of the franchise. And now that they sort of blew their load by doing uh, Endgame and, and Infinity Gauntlet and No Way Home and so on, there's nowhere to go, you know? And one of the things, I mean, I've always hated the CGI and those, I mean, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I just hate CGI, period. You know, I just can't stand to see CGI in a movie anymore. I, I just, I hate it. You know what I mean? I just can't look at it anymore, but especially on a TV screen, you go to the movies, right? And you, you know, you watch, you know, one of these Marvel movies when there's like 50 million characters running around and they're all, you know, once the camera pans out or pulls back, they're all, they're not, those aren't actors. It's all uh, just basically computerized puppets running around, right? And it just looks so fake and stupid. It just, when you look at, uh, you know, one of those movies on a television screen, it looks like a bad video game from like the 90s. 
And, uh, you know, one of the things, I mean, this is wicked inside baseball, but, you know, Marvel's attitude, and believe me, I know all about this, is like, well, we're Marvel, so you're going to put up with anything because, you know, you want to work for Marvel. You know, you want that on your resume, right? And all they've just been screwing all their effects houses. And it's getting to the point that a lot of effects houses, a lot of the big effects houses don't want to work for Marvel anymore because they don't want to pay and they're always making changes. And, you know, and that's why people have been complaining about like this new Ant-Man movie saying that the, the CGI looks terrible. And it's like, yeah, the CGI does look terrible because Marvel doesn't want to pay for good CGI anymore. They don't think they have. To. So, I mean, it's it's really over. You know, the movies are all underperforming and, I, you know, I can't really go into this too much, but a lot of these movies that they say are hits actually really aren't. There's all sort of these games that they play with tickets and so on that a little hard to explain, but a lot of it is just fake. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, you've got, you've got like Ant-Man is just flopping. They're saying, you know, the next captain marvel movie they're calling the marvels that's gonna you know that's they had to push it back to november because uh it the test screenings for it have been disastrous i mean shazam is going to be a huge flop you know dc is putting all their their stock into this flash movie with this loose cannon this like walking disaster ezra miller you know i, I think they've kind of like i think they probably got him stored in a straitjacket in a, in a uh, storage unit in poughkeepsie or something you know just to keep that guy out of the news right and he's just a mess and, and you know he's just a wreck you know he's sexual predator just a woke mess so that was like but that was the last sort of water cooler kind of culture that we had you know the people could go oh did you see Endgame. Oh yeah. Well, everybody saw Endgame, right? Every, I mean, everybody saw it and everybody could sort of, you know, I mean, even if you can't talk about anything else, you have nothing in common with these people. You can talk about these Marvel movies. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, That was great. You know, Thanos snapping his fingers, everybody disappears, you know, but without that, I mean, that's sort of like, you know, the, like I said, the, 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 the machine, the behemoth is losing a very powerful tool for social manipulation. You know what I mean? That, that it had for a number of years. And because they let all their writers and stuff just go crazy with all the woke bush bullshit. They, like I said, they, they killed the goose that laid the golden eggs. And, uh, you know, it could well be that Marvel's going to go down and then they're going to take Disney with it. I mean, Disney's stock, I was just looking at it today. I mean, it's, it's back under $100 again. And, uh, you know, they, they keep putting their, their feet in their mouth, you know, with all the woke bullshit. And, they you know, they, they basically ran into a buzzsaw when DeSantis, like, got pissed off because they were campaigning against his anti-grooming bill, right? So yeah, it's a really interesting period in time because, I mean, we really are at the end of it. And it, it's like... You know, people like you hear people talking about like national divorce and everything, and just people just like cannot find common ground on anything anymore, right? And it, it always seems so like the superheroes were kind of like I mean, it sounds specious and it sounds a little facile, but I think that superheroes in a lot of ways were sort of like the last bit of common ground that we had as a culture, and without that, we have nothing. 
Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the culture and plays out in the larger uh, sphere because, because Disney is so rapacious. They, they bought up all these, you know, they bought up Lucasfilm and they bought up Marvel and everything. But the problem is, is that, again, they killed the goose that loved the golden egg because it used to be Star Wars movies were an event. When there's a Star Wars movie every year, it's not an event anymore. When there's a Star Wars movie and then like two or three television shows that suck, it's definitely not an event anymore, you know? Mm. And and it's almost like this Avatar movie, which, you know, I mean, one of the reasons, the two reasons that movie did, did well, right? Made, you know, X amount of money because first of all, the ticket prices are like 40% higher than they were a few years ago, right? So- they, they they show those Avatar movies and all the IMAX and everything. And like the, the average tickets are like $25 where the tickets are like $15 uh, in the regular theater, right? So that's, and but the other thing that happened is that nothing else was playing, you know? Nobody wanted to go up against James Cameron, so they didn't put out, nobody put out any big movies. But there are, I mean, there aren't a lot of big movies left to be made anymore. I mean, it's a really interesting period because corporations got their their claws into all these, you know, mythologies. Basically, you know, the, the corporations, the corporate mentality, got its hands unfettered, unfettered in in a way, and all these uh, pop culture myths that sort of held us together as a culture. Right, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, uh, Marvel superheroes. I mean, you know, whatever, right? And because they just want to squeeze every ounce of profit out of these things that they can, they they overexposed all of them, all of them. And you know, one thing that I I wrote about in the Endless American Midnight, and I can say right now, is that myths are not forever. Myths don't last forever. Myths are not eternal, right? So, so maybe they are in one way where they sort of change form, but it's just like nobody cares about, you know, Hercules anymore, right? Nobody cares about uh, Daniel Boone anymore or, or Davy Crockett anymore. You know what I'm saying? Nobody cares about, you know, uh, Bob Mix or uh, Roy Rogers anymore. I mean, myths do die. And I really believe that we are we are watching, you know, the twilight of the, the spandex idols. I think that's where we are right now. I have no idea what's going to replace it. I don't know if anything can replace it. You know, there only there only there's a finite amount of ideas. You know, there's only so many ideas that you can exploit and make billions of dollars off of. It sounds kind of strange, but it's just like there's so many ideas that will find like a certain level of an audience but I'm not going to appeal to the masses. They're only a very small handful of things that you can really sell to everyone. And what companies like Disney did was say, we're just going to use these properties as our personal ATMs and then suck every dime out of them that we can. And they didn't realize that, you know, it's not an infinite source. It's not an infinite source. And, and the appeal of these, you know, even if they are mythological in the larger grand scheme of things, 
there's only so much you can exploit from them. Well, it does seem like, you know, this whole, you know, Joseph Campbell idea has been exploited to the brink with Star Wars, right? And I mean, Disney, mm. we all know, just ripped off every Grimm's fairy tale and, and all the other types like that. And, you know, Dune. And, they, they ripped off Dune. Mm, okay. Well, and another, you know, when I when I think of Marvel, you know, the X Men again come to mind. Maybe because I've been watching this animated series, which I I'm I think is a cult classic. I think people ought to go back to that if they're you know disappointed. Yeah, if they're just it had an X Files feel to it, even with the intro song. Yeah, but you know, you're nailing it now. You're nailing it. Yeah, my kids watch that shit, man. You know, every Saturday morning. Right. Because right. they show like two episodes in a row, I remember. Oh, and they always hook you with like a cliffhanger too. So I'm just sitting here eating it up, just going from one to another. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, interesting stories in that because they took this continuum of esotericism that's really, you know, I recently interviewed a gentleman named Ronnie Pontiac who put this really great book together. I recommend you check it out, American Metaphysical Religion. And he really just points out, you know, a lot of things that you well already know in great detail how this, you know, occultism has been, you know, bread and butter here in America. And it feels like the superhero you know, age, the spandex gods were a continuum of that, you know, like the secret chiefs of the, you know, theosophist age and even the classical pantheons and Hebrew heroes that you write about, right? I mean, they're all just repeating the same pattern over and over again. So, yeah, I don't know what's next. I mean, there's only so many myths. We might have to go and dig up like some South American or some Southeast Asian myths and start reaping those. You know, I don't know what Disney's going to do. Well, you know, you know from a lot of live streams I've done that a lot of this stuff comes from the watchers. And that, the, in my estimation, was, you know, Bulwer Lighton taking the piss out of a lot of these watcher cultists, you know, which sort of became, you know, very explicit in the early 20th century when Alice Bailey started writing, you know, her books that are all very explicit about the watchers and the watchers, you know, are our guardians and they're going to, you know, they're going to emerge from their hiding places, you know, when the world is at the brink of destruction and they're going to save us all. You know, uh, they're just going to kill seven eighths of the population first. Right. Because, uh, you know, Bailey thought that the atomic bomb was uh, God's instrument of uh, karmic justice, I guess. I'm not even sure uh, right now, but, you know, it could be we're just going to go from the frying pan into the fire, you know. And we had like the uh, the fun, silly uh, versions of these characters or whatever you want to call them. And they're going to, you know, we're going to get the, the real thing and some some incarnation or the other, right? But, you know, one of the things that I've been pointing out is that, you know, you sort of went from like in the 60s where the X-Men are, are just basically superheroes, right? You know, and also up into the 90s. But then you started having all these like super race stories where they, they don't care about anyone else. They only care about themselves, 
and uh you know they're just in into their own you know evolutionary imperatives you know uh you know i talk about things like uh like the 4400 and heroes and the gifted and sense eight and uh you know a lot of these kind of ya things uh twilight's a great example you know so these are all like superhumans but they're not superheroes right because they don't save anyone they they just they only care about themselves and their own imperatives and there's this whole story arc with all these characters where they're all you know they're all oppressed and they're all misunderstood you know, and they hate, you know, humanity hates them. And so they're just going to just do what they're going to do. Right. And uh, that to me is a very, it's a very antisocial and uh, troubling archetype. The, the, the uh, potential for abuse and abuse as far as uh, conditioning and propaganda is immense and i'm starting to see i'm starting to really wonder if that's what we're seeing you know that they you know with all the the stuff that's going on in the schools you know with all these pro i mean not just the grooming stuff but all these programs that they're trying to brainwash these kids with you know they're trying to create these kids to see themselves as apart from from the rest of us you know that then they're they're like a new uh mutated race right uh they, they're like a new consciousness somehow and that to me is is not going to end well for anybody uh and and it's all you know the the trouble the most troubling thing about it is that it, it all comes from a lot of science fiction you know particularly one of the things that i think seems to be a uh an inspiration for it is childhood's end which was, of course, written by Arthur C. Clarke, who was just a flagrant pedophile. I just a straight-up, unapologetic, unashamed boy lover. You know what I'm saying? And that's the reason why he moved to Sri Lanka, because, you know, he could get away with it there. And uh, that's, that's not a, a very comforting uh, precedent for what we're seeing. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's all going to crash and burn, I, I think these plans are insane. I really do. But that doesn't mean they're not going to try to pull them off. You know what I mean? And it may be like they want this these kids who are going to have all these, you know, like uh, they call it the SEL and the DEI and the CRT and all these kind of uh, social conditioning programs that they're trying to pump these kids' brains full of to make them feel that they're not our kids, you know, that they're not part of us and we're not part of them. And it's almost like they're trying to raise, you know, like that's to me is like the curdling, the curdling of the whole X-Men idea. Yeah. You, you see what I'm saying? Like that's the, that's the, uh, the rancid reality behind all the fantasy. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, I think I've kind of fallen victim to that in a way when I was younger, uh, you know, sort of not being like, I don't know, in my own eyes, who I wanted to be at a young age. But I think every young person feels that way. 
And my Mm. outlet became wrestling and martial arts, which I think was a very healthy, you know, turn Mm. from where it could have led me if I had, you know, really attached to that I'm a mutant, I'm different kind of idea, you know, because, yeah, there are certainly classmates who who made me feel like a mutant, you know, but I look back at them as, as sort of like constructive influences now rather than like, I was oppressed, I'm some victim, you know, I think that's character building it built your character yeah that's a big way how they've inverted this all by giving people this impression that they're you know a snowflake yeah (laughs) yeah victims yeah they're the victims of society absolutely i mean i you know so there is this whole overarching sort of social engineering agenda behind all that Mm. that's sort of coming at loggerheads with the other aspect to all this which is all these people you know not all of them of course but a a frightening amount of these people are just they just want to fuck kids they're just they're just pedophiles you know and 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 they're open they're increasingly open about it you know what i mean i mean they call themselves maps now oh we're maps you know well, we're we're vir- we're virtuous maps. I mean, we you know, all right. So we want to fuck kids, but we're not going to. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure that will that will work out for you. I'm well, sure. Yeah. And it seems it seems like you know, stupendous that, and not a coincidence at all that these you know disgusting people are attracted to these same fields that are latent with the occult. Right. And I wonder what that is. I mean, I recently had a conversation with a gentleman named Ian Ferguson, who he his theory is, okay. we have the Malachians versus the Luciferians. And I don't know if you see it in this hierarchy or not, but do you think it boils down to that where certain people are, you know, affected by otherworldly entities? That's why they're attracted to these types of, you know, forms of entertainment that are you know, laced with these occult ideas? Do you think that has anything to do with it, or do you think it's just a societal expression of a sort of illness that we just haven't quite figured out as a society? I, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what this Malachian and Luciferian, that just sounds like a best metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, like, when I use terms like Luciferian and Satanist, I you know, I use them with a small L and the small S, right. you know, as adjectives. Right. As descriptives of behavior, not like and there are no Luciferians. I mean, there might be like weird little sects here and there that consider themselves Luciferians. But there's there's no I mean, believe me, I've been doing this a lot longer. I mean, I've been doing this shit longer than you've been alive. And it's just I, I've looked and it's just not there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have found a lot of evidence for like particularly the the mythos cults, right? Uh, because, I mean, you just showed me those photos of that mythos temple at Yale, which is just like, yeah, okay, well, that's where it belongs, right? And then somebody else in, in the group on, on the Patreon was putting up pictures of the mythos temple in London in Mike Bloomberg's headquarters. Right. You know what I mean? And we have the Mithras cap on the official seal of the Senate. Yeah. Right? And, and then it, we, it, have, uh, we have Mithras, uh, this sort of classical depiction of Mithras that they call Prometheus at Rockefeller Center, right? 
Uh, but it's it's all the hallmarks of these ancient Mithraic depictions. And then we have uh, Mithras Phanus or, you know, Mithras Lucifer, right? At uh, the AT&T headquarters in Dallas, right? So it's just like, I know it's sort of fun and cool to like use terms like Luciferian, right? Because it sounds like kind of rolls off the tongue. It's like Luciferian, right? And it just sounds like you're a badass. It's like, oh, hey, man, it's the fucking Luciferians, right? <laughs> but it's just like, this is, there's nothing there. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, I use, I'll use the term Luciferian as, as an adjective, as a descriptor of a mindset. Yeah. And I think that's valid. But, you know, I mean, there's, it's just not there, you know? And Satanism, like I, I keep saying, is just like this, this lark for perverts and losers. And it's basically... If you're not a pervert, you're a loser if you're a Satanist. I mean, that's just there's no there's no other options. Well, there is. There's one more option where you're a perverted loser. <laughs> I, no, seriously. No, I, I mean, it's just like yeah, there, there's I, no yeah. such thing as a Satanist who's not a pervert or a loser. Yeah. Right? There's just this it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. You have to be one of those two. And so it's like I don't think that shit seriously but it's just like i mean i talk about like the watcher cults because i mean we have writings going back thousands of years on that right and i and like i said if you read alice bailey's books alice bailey who's who gets money from george soros and bill gates and uh you know wells fargo and goldman sachs and you know all these and has like her head you know the headquarters for the loosest trust in 120 Wall Street, this giant ziggurat-shaped skyscraper on, on on Lower Manhattan, you know, not too far from World World Trade Center. You know, that's that's what you can point to and go, yes, yeah, that's that's an expression of it. Yeah, you know, that's right. you know because she was quite adamant and open about her adoration of the Watchers, and the Watchers were the good guys, and they were they sacrificed themselves to bring uh, holy enlightenment down to earth, right? So that's like, that's real. And that you can point to and say, there it is, right? Yeah, I mean, there's like Satanic Temple, which is like a CIA cutout bullshit pedo operation. And they just really want to get their hands on kids, you know? But they also like, you know, like make abortion a sacrament and everything. And they're all up to some other nonsense. Uh, But they're all just a bunch of dumpy weirdos. Right. You know, and, well, and, and then and there the, was, and then this Vase operation, which is just sort of like basically exists so they can go on talk shows. You know, I don't, I don't know how many actual members. I, I think, I think, well, one of the reasons they exist is because they sell like, you know, these fake priest priesthoods. So people like Marilyn Manson, you know, you can say you're a priest in the church of Satan, right? Right. But it's, it's just all, it's just all bullshit. It's just all nonsense. And, uh, so, you know, when you're asking me about that guy, whatever, I mean, I'm not familiar with his work, but I've been at this for a long time and I've looked hard for that stuff. And uh, it's just not there. It just isn't. You know? And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with human nature, you know, because one thing I always say is that people who see themselves as like, you know, masters of the universe, I'm not going to identify with the loser in somebody else's story. They're just not. It doesn't appeal to them. You know, what's in it for them? Like, why should they identify with that? You know, uh, there's just nothing in it for them. 
And, you know, if you get into these, these weird cults that have always been sort of the province of like alpha males and, and so on, uh, you can, you have complete license to do what the hell you want anyway. So what the hell do you have to bother with this, this, you know, creepy nonsense where you're going to end up rubbing elbows with, you know, Taco Bell addicted kitty porn addicts, you know, which is basically what most Satanists can be described as. So uh, they're not, they're just not. You know what I mean? And and like I said, they're all these kind of like almost like eyed wide shut kind of like weird cults and all this kind of thing. And I mean, you know, you've done all the work, with all the, uh, you know, the scroll and key and the wolf's head and the skull and bones and all that stuff at, uh, at Yale, you know, you think those guys are going to like be into like Anton LaVey's honey trap bullshit? It's not, you know, there's just, there's no reason for it. They don't need it. They don't need it. It doesn't offer them any advantage. And, you know, the thing I think that appeals more to the ego is like, oh, well, you know, Mithras is around before Jesus, so, you know, this is the real deal, or whomever, you know, the Watchers. You know, the Watchers are the good guys. You know, Alice Bailey wrote all about how they came down to save us, and they got blamed for it. And then, you know, all this stuff is in this Enoch book, which nobody takes seriously anyway, so, you know, whatever. It's, it's you know, you got to look at human nature, and you got to look at, like, the reality of narcissistic ego, and narcissists and egotists do not want to see themselves as the villain in somebody else's story. They want to see themselves as the hero in their own story. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? You see, you see what it boils down to. So, uh, yeah, they're just they're just not into it. They're just, they're just you know all this Satanist bullshit that we see, like you know we saw in the Grammys the other, a couple of weeks ago, and or we see all this kind of stuff at you know these mass rituals and stuff. That's just for the that's just for the plebes. You know what I mean? That's just to get the plebes all excited. But like I mean, look at like the Commonwealth Games last summer when they had that big ass Moloch bull running around. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The flaming outfit. Well, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the pulp stuff and, you know, the inspirations for comic books, you, you talk about Sherlock Holmes a bit in Our Gods Wear Spandex, and I can't help but think about Spielberg's take on Sherlock, young Sherlock. I don't know if you've seen that movie where you, this character, Sherlock Holmes, as a, you know, I don't know, high school student, stumbles upon a cult underground that worships a giant bullhead that pours hot liquid onto these, like, young girls that they're turning into mummies. And, you know, Sherlock comes and saves the whole day. But, geez, when I saw that, I was, like, I was stupefied. I'm See, like, I got to watch that again. I mean, it's like, that was, like, 85 or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, like yeah. Ages ago. You know, it's so funny because I saw so much of that stuff. And, like, I have this weird brain where, like, plots and stuff just sort of just, you know, I can watch a movie two or three times and I have to watch it again because I just, I, I don't retain those kind of details. I mean, I retain like symbolism, right. And, you know, whatever kind of like little Easter eggs that, that stuff just gets locked into the old memory banks, but I'm going to go back and watch that because I, I, every time I go back and watch one of these eighties things, I'm always just like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, how did we not notice this? You know, how, how did, how did we like just 
Oh, yeah. How were we just oblivious to this? But, you know, and like, there's a dark side to it, too, because it's like a few years ago, I went back and watched E.T. And I couldn't get 15 minutes into it because I'm like, this is just pure pedo wank. This whole thing is just a classic pedo fantasy. You know what I mean? Like creepy old a- alien man in a child's bedroom closet. Yeah. Oh it does. my God. <laughs> it's so freaking creepy. It's just like, it's disturbing. I'm like, you know, and I remember seeing that movie when it came out and everybody was just like, Oh my God, is it a heart? Like, but it's like, how, how much more phallic do you have to be with a like, little finger? I was like, the light, you right. know? Well, like, the whole thing looks like a scrotum, you know? I mean, the whole... Oh, it's so obscene, you know? Yeah. yeah. But even, um, even Close Encounters, too. I mean, Close Encounters isn't quite as bad as E.T., but it's just like that whole thing with the kid and it's like, you know, the little toys come alive and they're like, you know, well, they take the kid and it's just like, yeah, I don't really feel comfortable with that anymore. You know, it's a little too. Mm. Well, and as you've established, you know, like these things are, are just part and parcel for this time, this genre, it seems. I mean, sci-fi, of course, you know, big influence on that was H.P. Lovecraft, who himself was, you know, fond of young boys. And he's from our neck of the woods, New England. I actually went to a park that he based one of his stories off of. And mm. he kind of, you know, ripped off a lot of like local lore to create some of his horror stories. And one of them was this uh, Makamudis noises. And the Native Americans in the area thought there was, well, believe there's an underworld god in this area. And H.P. Lovecraft, I think he, he, the, the, the book, The Dunwich Horror is based on that little area and the lore surrounding it so yeah it's it's interesting you know him in particular kind of taking all of these ideas that blavatsky put forward and others her contemporaries and molding them into this like i think he described it as like mechanistic kind of well he thought of himself as a mechanistic atheist but really his work reads like he's devoted to these beings you know yeah that was all bullshit he was uh you know, it's it's a man with a secret, you know. Uh, he was a man with a secret, with a lot of secrets. And a lot of the things that he kind of said that he believed and he did were all, you know, pretty classic cover-ups to me. You know, I, some reason, more recently, and I, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but when he was younger, in, in when he was in Providence, apparently they were like, you know, he was like creeping on little kids and stuff. And uh, I think this was when he was like a teenager. And, you know, and, and then several years later, he, he kind of gets out of Dodge, which kind of rings some red flags for me. Uh, and then there's that whole marriage of convenience with Sylvia Green and uh, and then his little sleepovers with that young boy down in Florida. It's just like the whole thing is just so whacked out, but it's just kind of like he was, you know, he lived in this netherworld. That's really the best term I can think of it. It's like he might've saw himself or he, 
I don't even think he saw himself. I think he wanted to be. He wanted to be this cold rationalist, reductionist, materialist, whatever you want to call it. I think he wanted to be that, but he just wasn't. You know what I mean? I and he 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 literally, by his own admission, was plagued with nightmares, right? And a lot of these pictures that he puts in his stories came from his nightmares. So I think that that was almost like kind of a shield. It was almost like a wish. I, you know, I wish I were that way. I wish I could kind of see everything in this cold, rationalist light, you know, with uh, astrophysics and, and whatnot. He just didn't. I don't think he did at all. I just, I think that he was uh, beset. You know, he, he was like troubled, uh, almost like he was like demon haunted in, in my estimation. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time up in like uh, Cape Ann, you know, Gloucester and Rowley and uh, Rockport, that whole area. So I I knew that. And it, this was like, you know, back in the 70s before. I mean, you go up there now and it's just like it looks like New Jersey on the beach. You know, I mean, they they Gloucester. I I would I was trying to go back to the house that we used to stay at in Gloucester. And it's like, I just didn't recognize everything because everything was just like, all, you know, this was a marsh and this was like a sand pit and, you know, this was this. So this was a little forested area and everything is just like houses. Like, it's it, all I can picture is like houses just stacked on top of each other, like, you know, like, like Legos or something. It was disgusting. I was just like, they just killed this place. They killed the soul of this place. But I was lucky enough to be there when I was young before... Well, maybe a lot of ways I was unlucky, but that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, when there was still a little bit of that flavor, you know, that old time, a little bit of that vibe from Lovecraft, you know, that that he was picking up on, you know, and to me, it's just like the psychogeography, the psychogeography of of New England. Right. And uh, it's just been destroyed. You know, I mean, at least in Gloucester, I, I think there are probably places, a lot of places you can go to where there's still that that vibe. You know, there's still that flavor. There's still that feeling, but definitely not, you know, definitely not in Cape Ann. I mean, it's just, mm. Mm. it sucks, you know. And I mean, even the Cape Cod, I mean, it's just like, uh, we used to have a, a summer house down in Cape Cod on East Ham because actually, uh, you know, my family on my father's side, you know, they were one of the original settlers of that, of that, of that town. And they, they were like, you know, I've kind of been reading in between the lines. I think, I think I come from a line of pirates. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was big business in New England back in the, you know, yes, early. Yes. Yes. Cause like the earliest Knowles that I could find in my lineage uh, was a Richard Knowles, but his, his, real name was like Reinhardt or Rick, you know, some, what are these sort of old English Germanic, you know, names. And he kind of like had a, he was a, a boat master and he sort of traded up and down the Eastern seaboard and everything, but it was all just like very, yeah, it just seemed a little sketchy. You know what I mean? And, and just the fact that they, you know, so like, a lot of a lot of those relatives might came over on the you know when the Mayflower was coming back a little bit later than the Pilgrims like 1630s, but they you know they got the hell out of you know because Plymouth Plantation was just basically Jonestown right just a corporate Jonestown 
It was owned by a corporation. It wasn't like a bunch of brave pilgrims uh, yearning to practice their uh, religious beliefs. It was a it was a corporate colony put there by banks, bankers in London and Amsterdam, right? And uh, you know, and then my near dwell uh, ancestors got the hell out of there, and they they went further down the Cape and they they settled uh, east here. So. Uh, it's freaky though, because like this, there are a couple uh, cemeteries, like one on Route Six, and it's just like everybody is a Knowles, and you're just like, oh shit, you know, it's just like, oh, they're all dead. That's you know, it's like I come from a, I come from a, a dying line, right? But uh, and they're all like Freemasons too, right? Uh, but that pretty much everyone was back then, at least up in New England. Mm. But uh, yeah, I think they were pirate, uh, as as far as I can tell, wow. uh, at least some of the earlier ones. But what was I even getting at? Uh, we were, we were, I mean, you know, but the Cape, the Cape is like, Cape is destroyed too. And they sucked all the, the, the flavor out of that place too. And it's just, I mean, unless you're in like the really rich places, it is, you know, again, it's just like New Jersey. Yeah. And actually, uh, I, I was up last summer, I was up in Cohasset. Have you been to Cohasset? No. It's uh, it's sort of like on the, it, the the southern rim of the South Shore, almost you know, go a little further down. You're like in Kingston and Plymouth and so on. But anyhow, you wouldn't believe the money in that town. Like I've driven through like Bel Air and Santa Monica and Santa Barbara, you know, like all these neighborhoods in California, and they look like slums compared <laughs> to Cohasset. I you right. just you could not believe. I mean, it's just like you can't believe. You know, there's a street or right on the water it's called atlantic avenue and you drive down that and it's just like one ridiculous mansion after the other but it's just like you've never seen anything like in your life I mean, it's just crazy and then there's like these little uh inlets and like the houses in there are even more insane you know just like i don't know what the i don't know who those people are i don't know where they get their money but they are motherfucking rich so the funny thing is that because they, they're rich and they uh, can control the local governments with the zoning laws and stuff, you still have like that old kind of New England flavor. You know, you, you know what I'm saying, oh, yeah. right? You know, oh, you, yeah. You, yeah, you know what I mean. Like you, you still have a little bit of that flavor, and it's probably like that in the whole coast you know, of so, Connecticut is is just as you're describing it. I mean, it's overdeveloped for sure, but the places where historically wealthy people have lived are much more, you know, naturally focused, but you know, crazy mansions in in like the weirdest little places. Tara and I were tracking down some shell middens because up in New England, the Native Americans, they didn't build mounds. The soil wasn't good for building mounds. So instead they built piles of shells and those were sort of like their mounds. And a lot of those just got completely bulldozed over as the, you know, developers came and made all of these New England places into, you know, beachy type towns. And yeah, now it's just like there are a dime a dozen these beach towns and all of the sand comes from Cape Cod, by the way. They just ship it in every year and pour it in. But but yeah, yeah, we could talk about local stuff all day. Uh, I don't know how many people would be interested in that, but we got off on this talking about H.P. Lovecraft. But I do want to circle back to New York City because, you know, New York City is kind of, in some respect, like Philadelphia, uh, sort of 
you know, outdoor museum, so to speak. You can find artwork in public spaces wherever you look in New York. One mm. of my favorites is coming out of Grand Central. You see this, you know, giant statue of Mercury or Hermes, right? And it's just like, I mean, it's it's incredible. It's like ancient Rome. Yeah, yeah it's like really. The ancient Romans would admire that, you know. They would yeah. think that that was, hey, good, good work. <laughs> well, and then... It, even inside of Grand Central is amazing too. You know this. Yeah, that star map on the ceiling and right, right. And yeah. I know you've you've decoded a lot of this in the past, but you know it kind of connects in a weird way to what we were talking about with superheroes because New York City was a real setting for a lot of superheroes. You know, unlike these kind of fictional places that a lot of comics cooked up, New York City was a place that you could kind of you know get away with you know fictionalizing to some degree because it's just like this chaos of buildings and things and uh, the reputation preceded itself. So you know, Spider Man takes place historically in New. York City, but you mentioned earlier the the illustrators kind of going on you know a psychopompic sort of journeys on psychedelics through New York City for inspiration, and yeah, I think see see, that's where see so just to back it up a little, so you know we talk about the comic books right, and the superheroes are created for the pulps, right? Uh, Like the Shadow, the Avenger, the Spider. Uh, Doc Savage, uh, just a lot of a lot of these kind of characters, and they're all sort of like, you know, in that shadow mold, like guys wearing like you know fedoras and and capes, you know, and they all carried guns and stuff. I mean, they were just basically almost like vigilantes, right? But a lot of them like went to the the, the quote unquote Orient to to learn, you know, the the powers of the fakirs and so on. You know, so it's very much influenced. Very heavily influenced by uh, like uh, Theosophy and Rosicrucianism, and actually, I mean, both Theosophy and the Rosicrucians would advertise in the pulps. You can go online and see a lot of these old ads. But the point being is that the super superheroes became, you know, what we recognize more, you know, wearing like these kind of outlandish sort of circus costumes, you know, and that's really where it sort of started. It's like Superman is dressed like a a circus strongman, you know, with like the skin, the tights and the, the cape and so on. Right. And the underwear on the outside, <laughs> uh, you know, that's very much a objectively, that's sort of what he's based on. And that sort of starts with a character named the phantom who was created by a guy named Lee Falk. Uh, that was the first costume superhero as we sort of recognize them today. And kind of looked like Batman almost just without the cape. But what I what I think happened, so you had all these kids, mostly like Jewish and Italian kids from like Lower East Side, Brooklyn, or like say like they'd sort of, you know, their parents had lived on like these slums in Lower East Side or, or the Bowery or wherever, right? And then they uh, made a little bit of money and they moved out to Brooklyn or the Bronx or, or wherever, right? But I think these kids... You know, they could they could draw and they they sort of learned how to draw by copying, you know, uh, the Sunday funnies. Right. Because the Sunday funnies used to be huge, uh, just like amazing. They'd be huge sheets, beautiful color, like the best art in the world. I mean, that was like the Sunday, the old Sunday funnies. That was like, you know, the Marvel movies at the time. That was like that was the shit. 
you know, that was like, if you were a kid, these, these huge, and you know, it's just amazing. The color and the artwork was just astonishing. So they would learn how to draw and then they, you know, the whole comic book thing became, so they'd go into these like shitty offices in, in Midtown and get these jobs and, you know, just making peanuts, but they didn't care because they were kids, you know, but they would walk around these neighborhoods, you know, particularly like around, uh, you know, Madison Avenue, Murray Hill, you know, up towards Grand Central and so on. If you walk around a lot of those uh, neighborhoods in that area, say starting from like Madison and like 34, 33rd, and then going all the way up to Grand Central Station, I, you're going to think you're in like uh, a pagan metropolis because you go into all the all these uh, lobbies in these apartment buildings and they look like pagan temples. And the reason they do is that this was like, there was what was called the uh, Art Deco and, and neoclassical movements of the 19th century, where all the images of the gods and stuff became very popular. And that's where they started building all these statues with, you know, Nike or whomever, right? And uh, I think these kids would like to walk around these neighborhoods and see all this stuff. And all of a sudden, they didn't want their superheroes to be wearing, like, you know, big cloaks and overcoats and scarves and fedoras and whatever. They wanted them to look like like gods. They wanted them to look like the Greek gods. So, you know, they couldn't have them be naked. Right? So they got to put on, like, these, these skin-tight sort of like I said, circus strongman outfits. And that's really where it's, it comes. But it's like the shift, it goes from where the superheroes are just basically occultists, for lack of a better term. Because I mean, most of them, most of the superheroes, like I said, studied in the, in the Far East, you know, or the Andes or in the Himalayas or wherever. You know, they went and learned from these shaman or these mystics and so on. Mm. And they use the, their their powers to fight crime. So they went from being like basically mystics and occultists to being gods. You know what I mean? So that's why you see like the Flash is just basically Mercury. I mean, he's got like Mercury's helmet, you know? Batman is the devil, you know? Because if you look at a lot of depictions in like the Middle Ages and so on, the devil is always is this black Batman, Right, he's got the, the bat wings and so on. I mean, Superman is obviously Hercules. They they play that up to the nth degree. Uh, Captain Marvel, aka Shazam, you know, he gets his powers from Solomon, Hercules, Achilles, Zeus, Atlas, and Mercury. You know, so it's like he's just like all the power of the gods. And you read the, you know, in between all the the disgusting pedo and bondage shit that you see in Wonder Woman comics. There's all sorts, uh, you know, just very, you know, it's like she's always fighting uh, Mars, you know, the god of war, because she's created by Aphrodite, the god of love, right, or goddess of love. So, all you know, these kids all learned mythology in school, right? They they studied mythology. They studied, like, you know, there was that Edith Hamilton book that everybody read in school. I mean, I read it in school, right? And I don't know if you did, but... <laughs> But uh, so that's what I'm saying. So it's it's really what happens is that the superheroes are occultists and mystics, and they all sort of ascend into godhood. 
And I'll tell you something. I mean, you can go look this up if you don't believe me. But the the, the evolution of Superman is that he starts off one of these sort of pulp heroes in, in the fedora and the trench coat called Dr. Occult. Like literally Dr. Occult, right? And then Dr. Occult basically be, looks like Superman, except for he's, you know, he's not wearing the the, the bodysuit, but he's wearing like the, the cape and the, you know, the, the sort of the Roman kind of boots, sandals, whatever. And then like the little, the little trunks and so on. And he flies around. I and mean, it's just, it's basically, I mean, so Superman is, is basically just a, an evolution of this character called Dr. Occult, who is exactly what I'm talking about, where he starts off as an occultist and then he becomes a God. Right. And, uh, and that's kind of what we see. And, you know, there's, you know, in his origin is sort of uh, the ideas from Moses, right. You know, with, you know, almost like the reed boat, you know, then he sent through space rather than up the Nile, but that's sort of basically returning to first principles because, Moses' story is actually barred from Sargon the Great. Same exact story, the reed boat and the princess and all this kind of stuff. And it's all stellar symbolism. Right. Yeah. Right? And I've kind of, I've kind of like worked it all out, you know, pretty much step by step. So, you know, these, so basically what it boils down to is that the superheroes had like a hundred years. They had a good run. You know, they had a good solid run. They started in the pulps, you know, characters, you know, like, again, like spiders, the shadow, black bat. You know, that's another interesting thing you can look up because Batman is just basically a ripoff of this character called the black bat. who's basically exactly Batman. I mean, he even looks like Batman, right? And they, and the, the, the true publishers sort of came to this arrangement. You know, they kind of worked things out, but uh, there was... Bob Kane, the quote-unquote creator of, of Batman, I don't think he actually created anything, was a, a real sleazebag. I mean, he, he was a kid, too, but he was he was already, he was a very precocious little operator. Huh. But it was just a total rip-off uh, on this character called the Black Bat. So, uh... Huh. <laughs> I just learned from a, a vampire expert, Dr. John Edgar Browning, that in South America, they have a god... That's basically a Batman. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. This kind That's of right. this kind of That's connects it. to the whole vampire saga because the vampire bat was discovered around the same time Dracula became popular. So the whole idea of vampires sucking your blood is actually borrowed from the bat, not not from you know the old stories. Well, that's interesting too because Bram Stoker had some sort of connection to the Golden Dawn. And was a Freemason, you know, so a lot of the kind of stories, you know, you'd mentioned Sherlock Holmes before and Arthur Conan Doyle was also a Freemason, but was also a spiritualist. And I think he's probably a theosophist. So, you know, these things didn't just appear ex nihilo. They, they came out of this ferment of, uh, you know, cult groups and mystical groups and Masonic groups and, you know, all the rest of it. So it, there's a very rich melange uh, that gave birth to all these ideas. But like I said, I mean, it's you can't, you know, you can't keep going back to those old wells forever, you know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, you mentioned in the book, how many characters are based on the Gollum archetype. 
Batman, mm. who we were just talking about, is essentially a golem. Even Wolverine, one of the X-Men, is like a mm-hmm. golem, you know, this sort mm-hmm. of person who's only powerful because of their, you know, knowledge of technology, similar to the story of the golem where a rabbi creates like this, you know, crime fighter robot out of clay, you know? Well, so what I broke it down is that there are a number of like just pretty basic archetypes that all come from mythology and religion. So you have, you know, the Messiah and that's Superman. And those are the, the, the superheroes that act out of a sense of altruism. And then you have the Gollum character where the characters are acting out of a sense of revenge. You know what I mean? Of vengeance, uh, Batman, Wolverine, Punisher, mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And then you have the Amazon character, you know, uh, which is basically like a male character. It's it's almost like, I don't, I don't want to say trans, but it's almost like a sort of a cross-dressing type of character. Like an androgen? Yeah, because, you know, these characters are mostly, almost exclusively created by men. And our, our male fantasies sort of projected onto female characters. Mm. And then you have the wizard, Right. And the wizard is, uh, you know, characters like Doctor Strange and uh, Doctor Fate, uh, characters that are sort of magically oriented, right? And then you have the the Brotherhood, which is the superhero team. So the way I always sort of see it is that, like, the Messiah is like a father fantasy, and obviously the, the Amazon is a mother fantasy, and the Brotherhood is, a, you know, a, a social fantasy, you know, of having friends like yourselves, you know, like that that are outsiders, but secretly superpowered like yourself. But I think that the, uh, the most popular characters for the past 40 years or so have been the golems and it's just basically characters acting out of revenge because I think it speaks to the, to the mind of a lot of fans where they feel like they've been wronged and they've been aggrieved and they've been misunderstood and bullied and picked on and so on. So that's kind of like, you know, that's how you see yourself, you know, as this wounded character lashing out in need of retribution. You see, you see what I mean? Yeah. And the wizard, you know, the interesting thing about the wizard characters, I mean, I loved friggin' Doctor Strange when I was a kid. I had these, like, little paperbacks reprinting all the original stories from the 60s. And I, I just carried those things wherever I went. And I just, I just, like, I don't know, I'd go down and buy a candy bar or something, and I'd just sit down and just read that sh- those fucking stories over and over again because I just, so great. But I was definitely a minority because those kind of, Doctor Strange is never a really popular character. And uh, I think that a lot of comics fans kind of looked askance at them, unfortunately. But I I can kind of see, like, you know, I can kind of see the impetus behind it because these wizard characters sort of like, you know, they're kind of like hippie guru, you know. Uh, There's a heavy, very, very heavy drug, psychedelia, undertone, subtext to a lot of those stories, you know. And, uh, but you know, the other thing, too, is that, like, I mean, when you go back, like I said before, when you go back and, st- you know, reread a lot of these stories, you know, the, the, the essential unwholesomeness of this leaps out at you. Uh, if you know anything, you know, I, I, 
was always really super interested in psychology. I mean, that's why I went to this whole young thing. I mean, it really, it was like my interest in psychology that kind of got me here. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, I really started off where I was really uh, interested in Jung. And I was I was always really interested in how Jung sort of like classified things. You know, he was a sorter. You're like, I'm a sorter, right? I like to sort things. I like to put things in like, you know, because it's my OCD. Mm. <laughs> I like to put things in like little uh, groups and so on. And that's, you know, where Jung really appreciated uh, that kind of thinking, you know, where you are cataloging and sorting and naming and so on. And, and that really, you know, that kind of really appealed to me. But, you know, my understanding of psychology, which I've always been interested in, and for some reason, I think my mother always thought I was going to be like a child psychologist or something like that. I I, I don't know how I didn't, I, I just, I didn't have the patience for school, I guess. But anyhow, I, I just, you know, the, the, the essential unwholesomeness that you see in a lot of the, a lot of quote unquote children's stories, you know, when we talked about E.T. and how I tried watching it and it was like physically repellent to me. I, it was like forcing me away, like to, to turn off the television and just put the disc away forever. Just, I just could not watch the shit. And then seeing all the, you know, all these comic books that were so quote unquote wholesome are just like Freudian minefields. You know what I mean? It's just, if you just go back, I mean, like, say like just DC comics in the fifties and sixties, uh, you know, the subtext is just, it's just really blatant. Mm. You know what I mean? It's really in your face and, uh, you know, never mind, you know, something like, like Wonder Woman. And like I said, I mean, this child psychologist who was making bank, I mean, they were paying her good money and, she was so disgusted by these stories that she just walked away from this job, even though they were just basically, I mean, they were paying her like the equivalent of like $60,000 a year on top of all her other income, you know, in, in adjusted for inflation, it was, she was getting paid like $60,000 a year just to like, sort of just look, just leaf through the comic books and just make sure there's nothing that she found particularly objectionable. So, like, she was willing to, like, walk away from that gig because these Wonder Woman, pedo, bondage, sicko comics were so disgusting to her that she couldn't, her conscience would, her conscience would not allow her to endorse this shit anymore. And I think that's, I mean, who would do that today? You know what I mean? I think that's like, I, I, I her name was Josette Frank. I, I think she's like a hero, a heroine, you know? She she put her money where her mouth was, and Reese. I, you know, the thing that pissed me off is that they made this movie about the the dumpy pervert who created Wonder Woman, who who just by sheer coincidence got his start as one of the first psychological warfare officers for the army. That's how he got his start. That's how his career. Who is this? Launched. What's his, his name? name was, uh, his name was his name was uh, William Moulton Marston, huh. and uh, he was in with like a lot of those kind of. He was in with a lot of people like uh, Kinsey. Was, I don't know about Kinsey, but he was definitely in with like Sanger and huh. you know a lot of these kind of like weirdo Bohemian types, you okay. know, from that era. 
But anyway, they made a movie because he was a bigamist. He, he knocked up one of his uh, graduate students. And, they, you know, of course, Hollywood is going to just make make him into a big superhero himself. But the way they depicted Josette Frank was just like, just like a, basically as a church lady. You know what I mean? Hmm. And it was just, I, I, I watched those scenes. I didn't watch the whole movie because I would never watch that whole movie. But I, I, I watched some of the scenes with her and I was so angry. You know, I was just like, fuck Hollywood. Burn it down. Just burn the whole fucking thing to the ground. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they take a woman who is, a, a, you know, a person of conscience, you know what I mean? Who, who let her conscience be her guide and would not sign off on this disgusting filth. And they make her into like, you know, this caricature, you know, this prude, you know what I'm saying? And she's just like, yeah, I don't think you should have like, you know, comic book stories about like uh, babies spanking each other, you know, and tying kids tying each other up and shit, you know, I don't, I don't think you, you should be selling that to kids. This is just pure aversion. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what Hollywood is all about now. You know well, what I mean? It, uh, it seems like it's been that way for a long time. I mean, a lot of those pulp comics that we were talking about that got sort of taken away by the comics code, didn't those become movies in the early days of film? I mean, I can think of a bunch of B movies that remind me of, you know, Pulp Fiction type themes, right? Where it's like capers or sandal clad, you know, gods and goddesses and, and things like that. Well, you know, it's got to be, you know, you got to look at it in context. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's like, I don't want, you know, people to think that I'm a prude or whatever. I just don't think you should be selling adult fetish material to children. Right. That's all. It's just simple. You know what I mean? I, I don't think that's too unreasonable. You know, I, I think it's sick and weird that adults are into that shit. But, you know, it's not my business. You know what I mean? But I, I don't think they should be pushing that stuff on kids, you know, which, I mean, they're doing more than ever now. I mean, all these librarians are putting all these you know, uh, graphic novels, you know, or like just flat out kiddie porn, you know? And then like, you see all these people in the media, you know, oh, censorship, censorship, censorship. It's just like, at what point, like, like, would this be acceptable like two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? You know, it's just like, Oh, well, we've just decided that it's appropriate to, you know, have kids read, you know, a book like Genderqueer or something. And uh, like, what, what bizarro world are we in right now? You know, when, when was that ever acceptable? You know what I mean? Like, when was it ever, like, and why are they so into kids? Like, why are they just so fixated on kids? Why is the satanic temple just so fixated on kids? Why do they just want to get their hands on other people's kids? Like, what is, what's going on here? You know what I mean? And like, when was this ever acceptable? Oh, you know, you're a prude. You you sound like, uh, you know, moral majority or something. When was it ever, when did anybody normal think that the shit was okay? You know what I mean? When, when, when did that happen? 
I, I was I asleep? Did I miss it? You know, did I miss when it was okay to like show explicit, uh, you know, sexual material to children, like very young children, or to have like you know, drag queens come in and and work and show their nuts and shit to kids to kindergartners? Like when was that ever acceptable? Like I, I just I must have missed that. It seems like it, it comes through this these mystery cults. I mean, specifically Platonism, right? We're told that, that this is something that even goes on today in Greek culture. But I can think of in my you know research into New Haven, looking up at the courthouse and seeing what looks like naked boys reaching forward towards a seated Roman emperor type figure. And this is in the pediment oh, of the yeah, Tiberius. It sounds like Tiberius, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's the thing with like, so I, I understand what you're saying, but like, even with like the Platonistic stuff, it was like, you know, they were all wanting to bang like 16 year old boys, not like six year olds. Mm. You know, there's a difference. Mm. You know, there's a difference, you know, like, yeah, and all that stuff was kind of creepy and weird, but it's just like, there's a huge difference between like, a 16-year-old boy and, like, a six-year-old girl. It's just a, a, it's all the difference in the world. Yeah. All the difference in the world, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not endorsing either, obviously, but I'm just saying there's just a huge difference right. in context there. So, I mean, it's, we're, we're, we're through the looking glass here. We, we really are. We, we, just, we just, we're in, like, this bizarro world anymore you know what i mean it's just like i don't know where it ends i don't know where it ends it's uh i i it doesn't end anywhere good as far as i'm concerned you know and uh i don't know man it's it's just weird but it's just in, in one regard like i'm saying it's it's always just been sort of there in the background but now it's in the foreground mm. you know what i mean now now it is definitely most definitely in the foreground and uh, you know trying to get kids to just basically you know, mutilate themselves, uh, you know. And whenever you bring it up, I mean, if people just, like, they just cannot deal with it. You know, but when was, this, when, it, when was any of this shit ever acceptable, you know? And, and who is it acceptable to? You know what I mean? I mean, I've always kind of been, like, uh, on the, uh, uh, you know, because I grew up, my mother was, like, uh, you know, did musical theater and stuff and, you know, worked in New York and like the fashion, not well, the clothing, you know, sort of adjacent to fashion and so on. So it's like, I've always been aware of like the gay world, right? It's, I've always been sort of like on the outskirts of it. You know, it's uh, as far as like my, my upbringing, you know, with the music industry and so on. I, I never remember this shit being okay. I never, I never remember th- seeing the shit being celebrated like who 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 are these people in that? like where is this coming from you know what i mean like where is it coming from and i'll tell you something one of the things that i when i i want to do the dungeons and dragons thing uh and talk about like the roots of role play which are military of course because <laughs> so much of this shit is right you know the whole thing with like larping and and role-playing games we, we just, I think what it really boils down to, and never mind, so just put aside all the morality and the sexuality. Just put them over there for, for the time being. Because the real issue, and the issue that nobody wants to discuss, and people are always trying to change the subject and turn it around on you, 
But the real issue is dissociation. People are being dissociated, deliberately, intentionally, systematically dissociated. You with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like people are being put out of their heads. Their their identities are being shattered. Their bodies, even. It's mass scale dissociation. So like I said, put aside all the rest of it. Let's just put aside, you know, trans or or the grooming or whatever. Okay. Let's just Put that aside because, you know, you're going to get into the weeds and we're just, you know, you, you end up arguing with people who who are not acting in good faith. And, you know, it's just a waste of time. What, it, what it's really about and what really concerns me at the core of it is shattering people's selves, shattering their sense of identity, shattering their sense of, of in- bodily integrity. Okay. And as you know, because I've discussed it in many a forum, I think a lot of this is about ultimately about entity possession. You destroy somebody's sense of self and you make them a fitting vessel for something else to come in. You know what I'm saying? And the thing, you know, my epiphany with this is when I read one of these MKL to witch doctors talking about how, you know, the goal was to destroy the self and replace it with another self. Where does that other self come from? What do they replace? You know, where, when they destroy the persona and inject a new persona, where is that persona coming from? Where are they getting it? Right? You and Cameron and Cindy Gottlieb were obsessed with destroying people's identities, erasing their brains. Why? Why? Make them assassins? Really? Housewives? Housewives who come in with, uh, you know, postpartum depression? You can make them into assassins? Seriously? Bullshit. Bullshit. No. Because how do we know this? Because let's go back to the comics. Loretta Bender. You know, the, the one who was, who was basically signing off on all this weird shit that that DC was putting out there, all this weird psycho sexual weirdness. What was she doing in her day job? Annihilation experiments. She's the one who came up with this, came up with the idea of destroying people's sons of selves. And they always, always, always do it to the kids. Always go after the kids, you know, they, they've learned that adults are just too resistant. Adults have too much experience, too, much, too many miles under their belts. Kids, particularly mentally handicapped kids or mentally ill kids, are like putty in your hands. And you can erase, you can annihilate them. You can annihilate the personas and put something else in. And that's why I'm saying that that was the testing phase that was that was the experimental phase now we're in the application stage of the program because we're seeing what loretta bender did to those kids in those hospitals on a mass scale now on a mass scale we're seeing this being done on an industrial scale all across america and europe right where is it where is it going to end 
What, what, what is the purpose of this? Why are they trying to create all these broken vessels, these broken people? Well, I would argue that they they need they need those vessels for when their gods come back, or their their deities, or their demons, or their angels, whatever. They need the, those vessels for for possession. They, you know, uh, I, it could just be the ultimate in madness and delusion. And you know, I mean, I'm, that's that would be my default position. And it's all just complete madness and insanity and delusion that they're all just fucked in the head. But uh, I cannot, by any stretch of the imagine imagination discount the possibility that they know what they're doing and they've been doing it for a long time you know what i mean so uh it's so funny that i mean this is you know you just want to talk about our guys with hispanics and stuff and it's just like you can't get away from the shit you're like oh well let's just talk about superheroes let's talk about the x-men cartoon <laughs> no no sorry sorry no there's, there's, there's no there's no escaping it there's yeah. no escaping it, you know. That's uh, well, you see it in the X Men cartoon too. I mean, exactly what you're saying. Apocalypse like destroys the world, and then these like super military industrial complex, Cable and Bishop, you know, use these computers mm, to come mm, and you know save the day, and they barely save the day. I haven't gotten to where they save the day yet completely, but yeah, we'll see. It definitely feels like. We're heading towards a transhumanist nightmare uh, with an Orwellian sort of purgatory in between. I don't know if this has happened in the past, but it does seem like the major religions, for the most part, especially the you know weird offshoots, are looking towards the future for some sort of grand apocalypse, some big you know final judgment. Even New Haven, which I've been trying to decode the nine square grid that the city is built on the center square is built in the dimensions that can hold exactly 144 people exactly what the book of revelation says you know god will save 144,000 people right so <laughs> you have this sort of syncretism going on even with a wait 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 back up a little so n nine square like so it's nine across, nine down? Three three by three. So it's a nine square, nine squares all together, three by three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I was, I, was, I was trying to figure out if like, this was like a magic square. Like I was trying to like... That's what it, it seemed to me. I mean, I've looked into the whole Western mandala kind of, you know, all these different, you know, number arrangements in different, you know, cubes. They have a variety of... You know, three by three, four by four, chess is played on an eight by eight. And yeah, there's all these mathematical equations that I'm definitely unequipped to, to get into. But yeah, I'm still not certain, but it seems like the path work in the green area, the center square, it may be creating a sort of magical square what they would call, I think, inside of it, I don't know the exact phrase, but, you know, you draw a certain figure from point to point based on what numerical value you are trying to trace. So that may be... Wait, going wait, 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 wait. Let me ask you another question. Mm. Where is... in So in relation to this, let's just call it a magic square, mm. where is that Mithraic temple in relation to all mm. that? 
I can show you right now with my, I'll screen share one of my slides. It is very close. It's in one of the other squares at the art museum. So let me pull up and show you a map. All right. So this, you can see the path work with this image, but this is the grid right there where that circle above no, the I word see it, corpse, I see it. I see it. Yeah. That's the yeah. art gallery. Okay. And then if I go back to uh, a different slide, I can show you the pathwork. This is the pathwork on the green. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's, there it is. There you go. And here's a better image of the nine square itself. Here's what New Haven looked like in 1646, I believe. This is the original sort of map that they drew. And here's a more modern. That almost looks like a Crowley uh, star there. Oh, Was yeah. There? Well, yeah. Doesn't it look like his little Thelema? The unicursal hexagram. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought that may be it. I don't know. But when I realized that there's this whole science of, you know, drawing patterns between the squares of a magic square, I thought maybe it has something to do with that. Also, the comparison I have here with Solomon's temple being kind of arranged in that same three by three nine square. So, well, this alignment is very interesting. Harvard. Right, all yeah, of the original uh, Columbia, Rutgers, all the original Princeton. Ivy League schools are for the most part on this ley line. That is really, 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 really interesting. Right. Oh man, right. Right, go back, go back, go back, go back one. I'm looking at that map, uh, Mount Pilot, North Carolina. Mm. Yeah, this is uh, this is the line kind of zoomed out a bit. And the line that Peter Shampoo in his book Gaia Matrix, he, he calls this ley line the city ley line because it goes through New Orleans and then up through the eastern seaboard cities, Washington, Maryland, Baltimore, right? Philadelphia, New York City, New Haven, and then Boston. And also when you trace it all the way out, it goes through Teotihuacan in Mexico and Stonehenge in Britain. So go figure. Wow. That, yeah. uh, what, so what are these circles now? Because I'm seeing that they uh, intersect with Memphis, which always mm. I'm always looking at Memphis, right? So the way Peter Shampoo understands ley lines, he doesn't see them as linear objects. They're actually more like a sine wave and a bubble kind of expanding from a center point. So he says Pilot Mountain is kind of like this center point on the eastern seaboard and you can draw this uh, macrocosmic, these circles around it. I don't know the mathematics on how he, he got to those, you know, equations to draw that circle, but uh, he calls them. So these would be sort of like uh, the 3D version of a ley line. And yeah, Memphis is like a, as you see there, an intersection of two biomes, the Midwestern biome and the Eastern you know, mid-eastern biome. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, our founding fathers were aware of these sciences, so I imagine they probably uh, weren't putting these cities and colleges in alignment by accident. And Brown, Brown's like a, a little off the uh, off the line there. Well, you want to see some really wild stuff? Check this out. This is a cemetery, the first cemetery in New Haven, and, uh, well, I'm sorry, the first cemetery of its kind in America. I think I told you about this. Uh, and, yeah, it's got this Egyptian sun disk right there at the top. Mm-hmm. 
and those sphinxes. Mm, yeah, these are somewhere in the in the cemetery. I don't know exactly who's buried underneath them, but it's definitely significant. There's tons of people who are like, you know, historic Americans that are buried here. The first guy who ever claimed uh, that the Illuminati had taken over the United States, father of uh, American geography, Jedediah Morse, is buried here. His son invented Morse code. but uh, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's buried here. The, the uh, Webster's Dictionary creator is buried here. The first person to uh, claim Francis Bacon was the actual Shakespeare is also buried here. So, I mean, it's a who's who's of uh, mysteries at this cemetery, but it all culminates with this mysterious figure who's the only one who also has this sun disc, winged sun disc uh, symbol on his tomb here. And you know, you know what this is reminding me of? Did you see, uh, you know, speaking of theosophy and, and all these people, mm. did you see uh, John Carter, the movie John Carter? No. Because that tomb there, I, I should look it up because there's a tomb that sort of acts as like a portal for John Carter to travel to wow. Mars. Oh. And it, gosh, it really reminds me of that tomb right there. Wow. And I really wonder if there's a connection there. Well, just recently I was speaking with Chris Milligan who who put out like the definitive book on Skull and Bones and he thinks that Skull and Bones' tomb is connected to this tomb by an underground passageway and that during one of their ceremonies they're made to sort of wander out from underground into the cemetery uh, as part of their initiation. But the syncretism goes with this gate. Uh, it's sort of modeled after the temple at um, El Ashmoon in Egypt, which is Hermopolis, right? The city of mm, Hermes. Mm, mm, they also mm. have the Book and Snake tomb here modeled after the Greece Nike temple. And Book and Snake is simply, you know, BS, SB. They're like the same thing as Skull and Bones, just different name. Here's another really... Wait, are they... Wait, 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 wait. See, I've never heard of Book and Snake. Are they an actual group oh yeah book and snake is right across the street from the cemetery and they're on the same road as skull and bones they're basically formed by members of skull and bones so yeah it's, it's so how, so how did they let the city just fall apart to such shit though <laughs> <laughs> well they have 42 That's billion dollars i don't think they share it much with the city yeah they yeah 42 billion yeah that's that's their endowment i don't know what exactly that how much of that they have access to, but yeah, $42 billion that they're second behind Harvard for like the wealthiest yeah. institutions in the world. So, well, you know, the, the rich are not afraid of the poor, the rich are afraid of the middle class. So mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see the rich will surround themselves with the poor mm-hmm. as, as insulation as a buffer. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's exactly what's going class. on in new Haven because they, you know, they're able to marginalize people. And I think a lot of the people who are impoverished in New Haven, you know, they get jobs within Yale's like cooking and, uh, you know, transport, all the other things that you need in a big institution like that. But yeah. And then these colleges, colleges become so evil. uh, Mm -hmm. They exploit their labor. Like you wouldn't believe. And actually, so my daughter just graduated, right? Mm -hmm. We were 
it was sort of like touch and go whether she was going to be able to graduate because every you know every, all the workers went on strike. I think in like November or something, and uh, I am like so on their side. I mean, I'm sure that most of those people I would find insufferable personally, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure they're all woke and shit. But I, I am just, you know, I'm so on their side as far as you know the economic exploitation that they have to deal with. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Well, you see it everywhere in New Haven. You have these uh, stickers that say tax Yale because Yale's, you know, technically untaxed because they, you know, uh, are semi-religious as an organization. You know, I think there's some sort of... Really? I think there's some sort of religious loophole or maybe it has to do with them being a university. But yeah, the, the, there's a big, you know, local... Yeah, but their religion, their religion is all Masonic, so I didn't know the Masonic <laughs> well, yeah. was... Uh... As you saw with a lot of those buildings that I just showed you, like they're straight out of the, you know, Masonic lore. Yeah, I didn't know that Masonic orders got the tax write-offs. Well, and and talking about Mithra, you know, we have the Sleeping Giant Mountain only a couple miles away from New Haven. And one of the things about Mithra is that he was born from these stone giants. He was like birthed from a stone giant. Egg and the Native Americans actually believed in this area that that mountain was one of their sort of giants from their mythology who died in a battle with the Thunderbird and became a mountain, right? And mm. now you have Yale, this, you know, behemoth of an institution right here nestled between these two, you know, rocky, they're not really mountains, they're more like rocky hills. But you know, the Native Americans believe that that the body of a giant as well, sleeping giant and the West Rock and the East Rock that are right next to New Haven. So it's just interesting how that Mithra, Mithraic flavor is within Yale's sort of pantheon of esoterica. Mm. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's the sorcerarchy, right. as I call them, you know? Mm. Uh, the world is run by sorcerers and it's run on sorcerers principles, right? All the technology, AI, whatever. And you want to look at Yale technology. They, I mean, rubber, the automobile wouldn't be possible without Yale. Oh, they pretty much discovered that how to turn rock oil into fuel. And, and they also created, you know, vulcanized rubber, which became tires. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that. So, who do we always associate with Yale? The Bush family, right? Right, right. Well, uh, Prescott Bush, before he went into Congress, owned uh, or worked for a rubber concern in Braintree, in my town. Oh, wow. And actually, because my family, well, my, you know, my father's side, had uh, was a company called Globe Rubber Works. So rubber was a real big thing in, like, Braintree, Quincy, that area. And George Bush... Uh, was born in Milton, which is the next town over. But I, I believe that he, his family at the time was living in Braintree. And, you know, because of the rubber and that, uh, I guess, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what the connection with Yale would be, but uh, yeah, that was a big thing. Mm. And uh, certainly a big thing during the, the first world war too. Right. Mm. You know, with the uh, planes and the, tanks and all the rest of that shit that's very interesting as far and, and as to all well i mean doesn't it doesn't doesn't rock oil go back 
I mean, pretty long way. I mean, didn't the Phoenicians use petroleum for the lamps? I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, they always do that, right? With Benjamin Franklin discovering lightning, even though the Egyptians clearly had some knowledge of lightning, if you look at their hieroglyphs. But no, I think that they just sort of synthesized it there. It was Benjamin Silliman who who basically created what became like petroleum fuel that you could use in a train or an automobile. I I think the Egyptians had electric lights. Mm. And, you know, it wasn't because of aliens or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they were around a long time. Yeah, well, we found that Baghdad battery, right, which is basically evidence that they were able to use, you know, what is it, whatever type of energy is in a battery. Is it DC? Well, there's that, there's that, um, there's that uh, yeah, it's DC direct current. There's that mural in, is it Dendera? Mm. But, you know, with the... With the light bulb shape. Yeah, the light bulb and the thing that looks like a, a generator and everything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then, you know, they're down in those tombs and they've never found, you know, like some of those tombs down there, they've never found evidence of, uh, you know, of using torches and such, you know, the soot that, you know, that when you're down there. I, I don't know why it's so beyond possibility that they had like simple electric lights, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they 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 had glass. They they worked with glass. They oh, used yeah. glass. I I think a lot of that just amounts to the racial prejudices of the people who were studying it. You know, but yeah, but it, it isn't even that. It's like it's it, it's it's more widespread than that. It's modern. It's a modernistic yeah prejudice. Yeah, that's a better you know, the way ancients to put it. were all cavemen. And and we're the greatest, you know. It's it's that enlightenment thinking that's really where it kind of starts. You know, it's like so much so much of the shit that we believe about the Middle Ages, for instance. It's just all uh, just enlightenment propaganda. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we, we're taught the, the British, the British, like they were the worst offenders with it. And you know, since they saw themselves as like the you know the summit of human striving. Everybody before them had to be, you know, just a bunch of chumps. You know what I'm saying? And that kind of, that thinking, I think, sort of infected, their, you know, cultures beyond themselves. So I think when, you know, when you, so we have to believe that, you know, that our ancestors lived in caves or, uh, you know, they couldn't build like a simple electric light bulb, even though they could build all these incredible temples and shit, you know, what I mean? <laughs> that we couldn't probably do today. Right. right. We, we, we still can't figure out how they, you know, the fucking pyramids were built. Right. Uh, I, I think they could probably swing a simple electric light. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You well, know? and I even, I, think, I, I even think they probably had more intuitive ways of lighting, maybe light bulbs they would look at as like, you know, overly clunky. Maybe they had a more sophisticated way of technologically lighting things that, you know, didn't require glass blowing. But e- either way, I agree with you. I think there definitely is that modernistic prejudice when uh, a lot of this stuff second, is uncovered. Sure. All right. I've got this book mm. that I want everybody to pick up. Okay. It's called, you're not going to be able to read it because of the masking. It's called Ancient Inventions. It's by Peter James and Nick Thorpe. Okay. It's uh, how many pages? It's almost 700 pages. And it goes through all the things that the ancients knew how to do. 
and it will blow your mind. It will just absolutely blow your mind. Well, as a as a New Englander, you know, for some time, I'm sure you've seen some of the weird anomalies here in New England. One thing that's fascinated me is these pedestaled boulders where megaton boulders are like perched on top of much smaller stones. And uh, for the most part, archaeologists have just ignored these because their explanation, just like you're saying, for the Native Americans is, oh, they were too primitive to have any sorts of tools beyond bows and arrows. Well, they so, say they were glacial, that the glaciers just happened to move them. Right, there, which is way. also kind of ridiculous. I mean, but, you know, it, it brings to mind like this whole other possibility of, uh, you know, how sophisticated a culture may have been living here in this exact place where now this new, you know, nation is this very on this very old, old earth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I lost my train of thought. So oh, yeah, the <laughs> ancient inventions, they're definitely. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. See, I think we're getting stupider. Mm. I think we've, and, and I think, I mean, I haven't been able to track down the sourcing on it, but I have heard it said that, IQs have dropped in the past 100 years or 100 plus, 150 years. I mean, and I've said a million times, I'll say a million and one times, if you think that we've gotten smarter in any way, shape, or form, just go to any antiquarian bookstore and just start picking up books. You're going to very quickly realize that we're getting way stupider, way stupider. And again, something I'd have to source, but I've heard it said that, you know, during the 19th century, up until a certain point, you know, the, the American literacy, literacy rate, you know, that over 90% of Americans could read and write. I don't even know if over 90% of Americans could read and write today. Probably not. Probably not. But I don't know what it has to do with superior. I mean, we're just kind of going all over the place tonight, now, we? That's all right. Uh, We've meandered into a plenty of fascinating corners, and you're, you're sort of like a, a philosopher in this very uncanny realm, Chris. So I'm happy to just sit here and and soak it in. Let but... me let me just rant. <laughs> I've been I've been sobbing sick, and just to change the subject again, I think I've had I think I've had COVID or whatever. It's extremely mild. I mean, I've had worse. I've, I've had worse hay fever for real. But I've been taking a like high dose of Pepsid, which for some reason I guess has like major anti-inflammatory properties uh, at certain you know when you take it at a certain levels, and uh, it's been a miracle because you know I have gotten like very tight, you know, like just a little bit difficulty breathing, but the, uh, the Pepsid is just amazing. But I'm kind of wondering if, I, I think, I'm pretty sure I got it from somebody who's been triple vaccinated. Ah, uh, right. So I, I mentioned that on Twitter and somebody said, oh, it sounds like you're dealing with some shedding there, which is possible. Uh, everybody I know who's been vaccinated has been has, has had COVID like two or three times. Hmm. Everyone I know. I don't know if, what, what you know, you know. I don't know how it is with people in your family, whatever. But everybody I know who's been vaccinated has been has had COVID at least twice, usually three times. So, what a, 
you haven't been vaccinated, right? Yeah, surprisingly, not many people in my family did that. And, them. and I know, and I know the ones that did are not the type to talk about it with me because they know my reputation. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, the ones that have have definitely kept up with their uh, track record of illness. But I think that's kind of the the cycle that a lot of people are in especially in a place where you have the seasonal changes you know uh people just get hooked on all of these like nyquil and all these other things you know every year they they almost depend on them and i have a suspicion that that just makes your your body worse and worse and worse and you know call me a hippie but ever since i worked at whole foods and and took this sort of more organic natural approach and don't get me wrong. I've always been suspicious of uh, big pharma t- for since a, a very young age. So I'm I'm pretty organic to begin with. But I I certainly think that the people who who succumb to this sort of uh, medical malpractice, this you know global medical malpractice, as I like to call it on this show, uh, they were already you know victims to it in some way or another. And uh, compromised. Yeah. Yeah. Medically compromised. Yeah. It's that's part of the the transhumanism that we're talking about. I mean, they're doing it psychologically. They're doing it uh, to our immune systems. And I wonder, you know, if if even this conspiracy field is becoming, uh, you know, tainted with that same psychology that, you know, uh, comic books became tainted with, right? This sort of... Uh... Well, conspiracy has always been tainted. <laughs> mm, right. You know, I mean, you know, because it's always been kind of a free-for-all. Mm. You know, there's no, like, uh, conspiracy pope. Right? <laughs> right, right. There's no central authority. There's no. There's never going to be a, a conspiracy code like the comics code, yeah. Yeah, so... Mm, mm. It's always been a free-for-all. There's always just people talking nonsense. Yeah, well, there's plenty it's of nonsense funny, you know, out but there. It, I, you know, it's funny, though. I think in some ways it's gotten a lot better. And I think that's just because the situation outside has gotten so much worse. Right. And people have had to raise their, you know, it's like shit like, you know, Corey Good with his blue chickens. You know what I mean? The blue avians. Mm-hmm. Like, people are much less susceptible to that kind of stuff because, you know, We've got real things to worry about now, right? You know what I mean, right? And it, and it's it's quick to separate, you know, the wheat from the shaft when there's real problems going on. You know, you see pretty quickly who's on the ball and who's not. So I, I always say that you find out who somebody really is when they're under pressure. Yeah, you know what I mean. When, when somebody's under, when somebody's put under stress, that's when you discover what they're really about. Mm. You know what they're really made out of. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's happening now. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, things just are just so in your face. You know, it's like there's always been this, like, kind of game that a lot of conspiracy, especially sort of, like, amateur conspiracy people play, where they're always trying to find, like, oh, you know, oh, this one's a shill or this one's, you know, uh, controlled opposition or, you know, this isn't what you think it is, it's this or whatever. And uh, stuff always kind of got on my nerves because it's just, it's a game. I mean, it really is a game, mm-hmm. but like everything, you know, it's like everything's so out in the open now, you know, I mean, everything is just so crazy and in your face. Do you really need to go looking for like a little secret? Oh, you know, that's uh, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, it's just like, uh, 
you know, De- Deborah Joe Rupp, you know, from the, the 70s show, you know, she's a Scientologist and I think she's like, you know, the high witch queen of Hollywood, you know, just like shit like that, right. you know, it was like, you know, just like, it's almost like this competition to come out with the most outlandish kind of idea, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, we don't need to do that anymore because it's just, the agenda is right out there on the front page. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't need to speculate anymore. You know, it's all, it's all out there. It's all out there and it's just being shoved down your throat. You know, you don't need to go. Uh, I don't know. Well, we're getting into almost the top of the third hour here, Chris. I don't want to keep you all night, so we might as well wrap up now. But you've been hinting at some really interesting live streams, and you just posted a really great breakdown of what you're planning on covering mm. in the next few weeks. So we've got mazes and monsters, murderers and mind controllers. I imagine this is looking into Dungeons and Dragons and the whole role-playing games. And Mm -hmm. and then you have Theosophy, the mother of modern culture. We talked a little bit about that here today. Eyes wide shut then and now. The greatest Mm. X-Files fan theory ever. Thrill, Mm. the electric funeral. Many more. Go over to Patreon, subscribe to the Secret Sun Institute to get all of that live, jump in the live streams and join in the fun. I'll be in the chats with you. Chris, anything else you want to promote? Anything you want to say before we wrap up here? Any final thoughts? I just want to thank everyone for sitting through my meandering. I've been in a very meandering mood tonight. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know. I'm just tired or been been you know been dealing dealing with this uh covid nonsense and uh i don't know i'm just uh, I, mean, I get in these moods sometimes i get in these like a little weird kind of uh mercurial capricious moods so i just thank you everyone for uh putting up with me <laughs> oh yeah no need to make any uh... i've been out all over the place tonight uh sorry you know oh, just no. whatever no, no, no. This is great. I think we have this sort of dynamic here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, especially when you're on the show. We tend to always get to three hours. So, yeah, I don't know what it is, but I'll have you, you can't back. Shut me up is what the problem is. <laughs> I'll have you back anytime, Chris. I love listening yeah. to, to you go on. But, yeah. Anything else you want to let people know about? Obviously, you have your Secret Sun blog spot, and Patreon's really where you've been putting most of the content these days. So I recommend. Yeah, I, you know, go well, I'm gonna I'm gonna thinking about branching out. Uh, what I call the Secret Sun Extension School, because a lot of people are not into Patreon, and mm-hmm. I, I mean I understand that a lot of people have some issues with them. Are you thinking about Substack? Because I've used Substack as a sort of backup to my Patreon. I can do everything I do on Patreon and better because, you know, the the writing prompt is, you know, the area where you write out is much bigger than Patreon. So you can you have more, you know, comfortability just kind of getting your thoughts out, at least in my opinion, with the interface. Comfortability is always a good thing. Yeah, the interface is different than Patreon in a really, a, a more of a writer-oriented way. So I imagine it'd be a good, like, middle ground between your blog and your Patreon if you're, I don't know, were you thinking about exploring Substack or... I'm thinking about it, yeah. But oh, cool. another thing I'm thinking about too is I want to do shorter videos. Mm-hmm. One thing that people tell me a lot 
it's like, oh, I like the, the, the you know, I like the, the live streams, but it's just, I don't always have time, mm. you know, because we usually go like four hours or so. And, uh, you know, people just don't have the time. They, you know, they get their own shit to worry about. So I'm thinking of doing a lot, you know, uh, taking a lot of material from the, 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 uh, the live streams and putting them into more easily or easily digest abortions, you know, so people don't have to make this huge commitment to this four hour marathon. Mm. Uh, but the other thing that I want to tell people is just be of good cheer. You know, uh, you are here for a reason. You are here ultimately because you choose to be here. Uh, be a force for love and goodness. And don't let the bastards grind you down. And just, it's a ride. Just enjoy the ride. You know, the old Bill Hicks thing. I, I think about that more and more all the time, mm. you know, because if you go out in nature and you just realize there, you know, nature doesn't guarantee you anything. You know what I mean? Uh, nature can get pretty metal, right? Right. Can, nature can uh, get pretty cruel. So uh, there are no there are no guarantees in this, this life. So just enjoy every day that you can. And don't shut yourself away from others. Reach out to people. Uh, be, be a part of other people's lives, you know? Uh, you know people who need help feeling depressed, like a lot of people are these days, maybe reach out to them and give them a hand, give them a helping hand. Just be a joyous rebel. You know, joy is the, the greatest rebellion in this day and age. You know what I mean? Be a, a happy warrior. You know, I, 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 tell, I tell my peeps that we're Ronin, we're errant knights, we're exiles. We are wandering the earth like Cain, so to speak, right? Mm. We we are homeless. We are we are Ronin. We we are, we have no master, right? We, we we are wanderers, and we're scavengers, but we're free. You know, we're free to gather up the little baubles, the little shiny baubles that give us joy. You know what I mean? And we're free to interact with whomever. You know, uh, we don't have to worry about is this person in our tribe because we have no tribe. We are exiles. We are, we are wanderers. We are, uh, like I said, we're errant knights. We're mean. I mean, just embrace that. Embrace it. And let go of as much as you can. Okay? Just let go of everything that is inessential in your life. Just embrace what is essential. What is truly necessary what is truly needed and let the rest go because it's holding you back. It's holding you down. You know, it's, it's preventing your walkabouts. You can't go walking about when you're, when you've got, uh, you know, all this possession on your back. Just let it go as much as you can strip everything down to the essentials and pursue joy, pursue joy and, and love in connection, yeah. you know, this is this is this is where you chose to be. You choose you choose to be here every day, right? You, you make that decision. You get up, and you live in this world. 
So be 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 in it. Be in it. Be in it to win it. And don't let anything prevent you from seeking joy, seeking the, the connection to the spiritual world, because that's that's your superpower. That is your superpower. Is is your interface with powers greater than ourselves, if that makes any sense. Makes a ton of sense and I think that's a, a beautiful way to put a bow on this conversation. We sort of came full circle just then. So thank you folks for tuning in. Go and support Chris Knowles. The links are in the description. And of course, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Big shout out to Chris Knowles, returning champion four times here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And like I said in the intro, if you want to hear the entire episode, sign up on Patreon uh, or Substack or Rockfin. If you're already there, well, you are hearing it. You heard the entire episode. So thank you for your support. I appreciate all of the new folks who have signed up. I don't know what's going on with Patreon, but it seems like there's about five or ten people every uh, month who don't make it with us in the next month. Uh, You just seem to disappear. You don't show up in the deleted pledges section. So I don't know exactly what's going on there. Uh, I would recommend anybody who's signed up for the Patreon in the past uh, few months, two months, just double check, make sure that you didn't get unsubscribed for some reason. Maybe Patreon shadow banning us. I don't know. I'm not sure. So if you're having any trouble connecting with the Patreon, just reach out to me via email, mfticpodcast at gmail.com. You can also consider supporting us on Substack. I'm going to be uploading everything from the Patreon to the Substack at some point in time. And all the new stuff that goes out on the Patreon also goes out on Substack. And of course, all of the video content is available on Rockfin. And uh, we do have some stuff on Rumble and Odyssey. If you look for it there, you'll find it. YouTube, of course, I've been posting videos to YouTube and as soon as I can figure out what's going on with my Google AdSense, I will be posting more stuff on YouTube using the exclusive membership section. So uh, stay tuned. And if somebody knows a thing or two about YouTube and you've actually been paid by YouTube before and you listen to this show, uh, reach out to me. Maybe I could ask you a few questions because I cannot figure it out. Anyways... Chris is awesome, like we said at the beginning of this episode. Him and I had an opportunity to meet uh, last month in uh, Pennsylvania. Well, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, pretty much. I mean, it was right on the border. 
And it was a fun trip. Steven Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, was there. He set it up, and then Chris uh, gave me a ride to the train station in Jersey, and we picked up his wife, and we all had dinner, and it was a really, really nice time. So, yeah, it's kind of surreal for me, you know, hearing this guy on podcasts and then inviting him onto my show uh, as really one of the first big guests we ever had on the show, episode 14, longest episode we did at the time and uh chris and i just hit it off because every time he's been on the show we tend to have two three hour conversations and you know we can't say that about everybody so yeah it's 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 really delightful to know him and to be able to absorb his uh insights and wisdom directly and share them with you on the podcast and share it of course with the world whoever's tuning in whoever synchromystically taps into this source the same way i did when i found my way into the podcast world chris knowles was one of those guys you know what he was talking about on the higher side chats was so interesting i stopped everything i was doing and i immediately subscribed to his blog and i immediately if i hadn't already uh subscribed to greg's membership program his uh, plus higher side chats plus so I can hear the whole episode so yeah Chris he is one of my top five favorites and uh, yeah it's pretty cool to have him on the show but enough bragging shout out to all the secret Sun Institute people who are tuning into this Chris likes to support and share this on his patreon Hopefully he doesn't cut this part out. And if you are listening to this on the Secret Sun Patreon, come on over to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy Patreon. You can get a bunch of bonus content and great interviews with very brilliant people like Chris. So, yeah, we, we're right now uh, very, very excited to announce that we will be releasing an interview with Dr. Joseph Farrell this month. So if you want to hear that, please, folks, sign up right away. Sign up on the Patreon, the Substack, or the Rockfin and watch or listen to that episode. It's going to be mind-blowing. I mean, I know it was mind-blowing because it's already happened, but you'll think so too, I promise. Also, in other news, we have Ross Ben who just joined me on the show. So that episode will be coming out soon. Esoteric Eddie, who just joined me on the show. And if you want to listen to all these now, sign up on the Patreon. What are you waiting for? Sign up on the Substack. What are you waiting for? No excuses. Uh, it's as cheap as $5 a month. Patreon's the cheapest one. Substack's $8 a month. But for that extra $3, you get all of my Substack articles. You can even sign up for $8 on Patreon and I will automatically subscribe you for free to my Substack $8 tier. So uh, all kinds of options and I cannot do this without you folks. You know, I'd hate to have to go back to working a real job and cancel the show. So if you want to see new episodes coming out every week, uh, you got to do it. You got to consider supporting me because this is not a... Uh, a free product you know it's a value for value product and we do have sponsors but i like to uh you know work with people like the hit kit where they make a product that's really cool 
Uh, we have another sponsor that I'm going to be talking about possibly in a few episodes of this episode and more, Kush Cream. If you haven't gone back in the older episodes and listened to my interview with Megan Kush, she makes these really, really awesome topical creams that are super healing. And she just sent me a, a beautiful care package. It had so many beautiful things in it, and she is just an angel. So go and support Megan Kush. She is awesome. Uh, she listens to the show, her and her boyfriend. I think she actually went out and saw Sam and Eddie when they're uh, at the show uh, in Tacoma, which I helped set that up. I hope they hope you had a good time. <laughs> People who listen to Broken Sim may know uh, more of the details about what <laughs> Sam and XG uh, had to say about that. So, yeah, shout out to Megan. She's awesome. She makes a really great product. And if you're a hippie stoner like me, you know the healing power of cannabis and uh and megan is an og okay she's not one of these you know uh canna dorks who quit their you know six-figure salary job in insurance to open up a pot farm okay no slight against those guys actually those guys are pretty cool too in their own respect but megan she is an og og when it comes to the underground cannabis culture, the fight for legalization, which she was successful. Hello, the whole West Coast is legal, and that's where she lives. So uh, we, we have her to thank in, in no small way for that. So uh, Megan Cush, definitely an activist and somebody who I've talked to about all this stuff uh, in that old episode. So go back and listen to that or just hit her up. Check her out. She's on Instagram. She's got Kush Creams here. Let's punch it in right now in the search bar and see what comes up. Because I don't want to not give you guys the website. Of course, it's kushcreams.com. The number one award-winning cannabis topicals. Wow. This is awesome. So, it's all right there, folks. And of course, you got your Kush cream. If you got some Kush, you're going to want to roll it up. You want to keep it safe in your Hit Kit. Go and check out the Hit Kit on Instagram or hitkit.us. And hit up my man Garrett. He makes them all himself, handmade here in the United States, uh, small business certified. And he is a true G. He sent me this really awesome hit kit called the Dank Bank. And this is a perfect setup. If you're a parent, if you have roommates, if you have people maybe that you think are uh, dipping their gr grummy fingers, grimy fingers into your stash. God forbid somebody's snatching your stash. Hide it away in the Dank Bank. Garrett has come up with a really, really cool stash box, and you could just take the key and hide it, keep it on you all day, uh, and unless they know any better, they are not going to figure out how to get your weed. This dank bank is just, it, first of all, they'll probably be distracted by the cool designs on the front and, uh, and not even know how to open it. So yeah, the dank bank, check it out. I love it. And make sure you use the promo code CRAZY, all capital letters, C-R-A-Z-Y, CRAZY, promo code CRAZY, 
and get a discount at checkout. That's right, when you're picking up your hit kit, whether it's for a friend, whether it's for yourself, make sure you use the promo code CRAZY and check out those custom designs. One of them, which is a favorite, and I know a couple of people have picked it up since I started talking about it, so shout out to them. And it's the Hermes Trismegistus hit kit. Not only does it have a very, very cool design of the iconic woodcut of uh, Hermes Trismegistus, but it also has a QR code that when you scan it shows uh, the seven hermetic laws. So it's a great way to spark up literally a conversation around the fire, around the flame, because you know like I know, the only way to get lit is with a hit kit. So order a hit kit today. Uh, that's enough for me. I got to wrap this one up. Thanks, folks, for tuning into this mega episode with the great Chris Knowles of the Secret Sun Institute and the Secret Sun Blogspot. Go and check him out. Secret Sun. Search Secret Sun. He's also written some really awesome books: The Secret History of Rock and Roll, Our Gods Wear Spandex, American Midnight, um, Endless American Midnight. Um, there's another one. He will live up in the sky. I wonder. I didn't. I don't think I asked him if he's got another book on the way. Uh, but there might be another book that I'm just not remembering. So, anyways, rambling on here. Shout out to Chris Knowles and shout out to you for tuning in. I love you all. Be sure to support on Patreon, Rockfin, or Substack. The links are in the description. And do not hit me up asking me what songs were in the episode, folks. It's in the description of the episode. Go on the app, whatever you're listening to this on. Spotify, podcast, whatever, whatever app you're using. There is a description that goes along with each episode. It describes the guest. It describes uh, the topics. And it gives you all the links to support the show. And it also tells you what music I used in the episode. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be able to use the music I use if I didn't credit the artists that helped create this awesome sounding show. So shout out to them as well. Shout out to Destiny Lab. Shout out to Halizna. Shout out to... Tao shoot and shout out to whoever's next whoever's gonna send me a my family thinks some crazy song next i'm waiting all right thank you and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now mftic yeah Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling to the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad for a spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I 
dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.